Welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David, yes. how you doing? Oh, I've got so many so many feelings. I'm uh, glad that we're not on video right now. Yeah. <laughs> We've been doing for the Patreon uh, Admiral Fleet, Admiral Level uh, uh, subscribers. We do video for the Patreon episodes, so it was nice today to remember that I didn't have to worry about how I looked on camera yeah. or wearing uh, swag from my job because <laughs> yeah. I realized uh, this is doing the Patreon video thing has made me realize just how much swag from my job I have that I can't show on the mm-hmm. camera. Anyway, so I'm feeling that. I'm very excited about our episode today. It's probably my favorite episode we do all year. Seems to be most um, people's, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess that shows. Uh, but I'm also sad, Tyler, about the passing of Bruno Gans. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to bring that up because we're not going to be able to have time, I, I don't think, to do a profile episode on, on Bruno Gans. Maybe someday far in the future. We'll see. But um, I did have a thought just today about uh, Bruno Gans. First off, it was weird. Like, literally the night before he died, I or the night that he died, the night before I learned he died, I was watching The House that Jack Built, which oh, was the okay, last movie yeah. that he was in, as far as, far as I know. Um, but anyway, I had a thought about Downfall and how extensively that movie was memed or whatever. Yeah. And I'm wondering how many, like, people who shared that meme or even created their own versions of that meme even knew who he was or know now that the guy passed away you yeah. know uh it it's seems, a weird it effect, seems unlikely yeah but like bruno gans has yeah. a lot more people know who he is than realize they know who he oh, is yeah. and so it's uh i was i was sad about uh, that thought of people not knowing how much uh, how much of him they saw especially in like the what would you say like late 2000 when was that was that early 2010s when that I'd really so, bl- yeah. blew up well because it was because the first one i remember was um uh, the one with Hillary Clinton realizing she was going to lose the nomination. Right. So that yeah. would have been so 2008. 2008. Yeah, yeah. And then it continued for a couple of years. Yeah. And of course on Facebook, I did see a couple of Hitler reacting to Bruno Gans's death. Oh, um, that's, Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. So it's, uh, it was pretty funny, but yeah, it is interesting when, uh, similarly, okay, this is more of it's, it, I guess it still counts as a meme, but it's a, a gif. And it's of Charles Foster Kane clapping, and it's yeah. something that you'll see in comments, and you're just like, I guarantee that, and this is not to disparage the people using it, but like, it has taken on a life of its own, and there are people that have never seen, and probably will never see Citizen Kane, that have probably posted that meme yeah. many times. I do, and also, the the context of that scene is different than people are using it. Very much so. I always think about that when people use the um, Weebay from The Wire reaction when he's like, oh, you were yeah, that one? Yeah. But that, in the moment, that's him realizing the woman he shot last night was an undercover cop. Yeah. And it's like, it's kind of a heavy moment to be like a joke reaction yeah. gif, you know? Um, but nothing's too heavy to be a joke reaction gif, I guess. David. I guess not. So, yeah, I think about that a lot. But we've gotten, gotten off track. You had something else you wanted to talk about that was much more on topic exactly um it just it was so okay so while i am teaching several classes uh and i'm still doing the middle school thing um uh due to the pay structure i'm not going to see any money for that for a while so in the meantime i'm also uh driving for lyft and last night david it was I can't even, there are no words for the passengers I picked up. Okay. I picked up 
I'm going to guess they're sisters. Okay. Okay. Uh, in West Hollywood, it was about twelve. It was about midnight. Picked them up. They got in the car. Seemed friendly enough. Silent for about a minute and a half, and then one of them started talking about how tired she was, and then the other seemed very unsympathetic to that statement. And it's like, okay, now I see what's going on. One person did not want to stay as late at the bar as the other. Oh. The person that didn't want to stay as late is visiting from New York, and so is, uh, you know, it's still kind of on New York time, so midnight right. is 3 a.m. And so she started complaining in a way that admittedly bothered me, but I was probably more on her side because the other person was just not having it and just <laughs> did, just like, it was only a half hour. Who cares? You're being rude. <laughs> and so, and, but then the, the New York, uh, I'll just assume they're sisters. The New York sister, um, I won't say their names, but I know their names because the other person, it was just, if I were to be like, David, David, it was uh-huh. just that over and over. Um, and so, but then she started getting increasingly more dramatic where she's like, she says like, I'm just so tired. I think I'm going to get sick. I'm probably going to wind up in the hospital. <laughs> uh. <laughs> and so it just went on and on <clears throat> with the occasional two minute gap of silence. And then another, and then one of them or the other would start it again for 25 minutes. It was torture and hilarious, and hilarious. at the same time. Yeah. And the way I saw it, the way I thought it was like, are they rehearsing a one act play or something? Cause it feels like that. And um, it was just delightful. That in reminds me, it was torture in the moment. Yeah. Some of that reminds me of once I was on a train, the train back from comic con actually. Uh, and at one of the stops, this woman got on, um, she clearly wasn't coming from comic con, you know, she got off on it full to whenever mm-hmm. was also going to Los Angeles and she spent the entire time on the phone recounting her weekend. Mm-hmm. And the main thrust of the weekend was that she was like at a weekend thing with friends. There was a guy there that she was interested in that she thought was interested in her, but he showed up with another girl. Oh, and so she, that, that was the main thrust of all the, her interactions. But every time anything happened, like, and then he shows up with this girl, and I'm like, "Are you serious right now?" She said, "Are you serious right now?" Probably a half dozen times. And then the thing that she said that has now become an inside running joke between me and my wife mm. is she said to her friend, "I wish you would have been there. You probably would have died." <laughs> can't guarantee it yeah. I'm not a doctor <laughs> uh, but that's some, now something that Natalie and I say to each other wish you would have been there you probably, probably would have died, died. <laughs> yeah it's a weird it's like you probably okay you probably would have died yeah okay to emphasize probably is uh-huh. such an interesting choice uh, in the point you're making yeah um, and then uh, uh, but also just wishing you were there oh yeah yeah anyway um, incidentally I also uh, I thought I would while I was driving, I was listening for the first time in a long time to like old uh, best show clips. And, oh, okay. Uh, I, I'm fascinated with Tom Sharpling's like return to the question of what is the worst song ever written. Uh-huh. And uh, he was taking calls, and this is probably several years old at this point. Um, he was taking calls, and then somebody said, Paradise by the Dashboard Light. He goes, no, 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 we're talking worst songs ever written. That's the most song ever written. <laughs> and I thought, like, that is a wonderful, yeah. that is a wonderful bit. But anyway, okay. Well, yeah, we got a lot to get to, Enough so let's pay some bills. <laughs> Absolutely. 
This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film, whether it's a timeless classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece, a movie you've seen, you've been dying to see, or one you've never heard of before, there are always 30 different films to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected, so you'll never spend more time looking for something great to watch than actually watching something great. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um... Uh, it's like your own personal film festival streaming anytime, anywhere. Currently streaming on Mubi is Queen of Earth, directed by Alex Ross Perry. Now, I have not seen this. Yes. Um, it's his um, uh, Polanski riff. Okay. I feel like Alex Ross Perry, I've always liked his movies, but it does feel like a lot of them are like, well, this is this type of, you know, this is yeah, yeah. Golden Exit, this is him doing a, his version of like a Woody Allen type thing mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, Her Smell, which is his best movie so far and comes out this, this spring, feels like him really coming into his own. But yeah, Queen of Earth is his uh, Elizabeth Moss going insane. Yeah. Um, you know, sort of, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking, what's the uh, uh, repulsion type of yeah. type of movie. Yeah, it's really great. Yeah, as I was uh, reading the, the description, uh that they sent, I was just like, this sounds a lot, this sounds very Polanski-esque, yeah. but that kind of sounded interesting to me. I think the only Alex Ross Perry film I've seen is Listen Up, Philip, which I love. Yeah, it's really good. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so Queen of Earth is available. It stars Elizabeth Moss and Catherine Waterston. Yeah, she's Which great is too. kind of awesome. Uh, but anyway, uh, so you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash Battleship. That's Mubi.com slash, that's M-U-B-I dot com slash Battleship for a whole month of great Great cinema for free. And I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives. Uh, I was listening to... um, You and I talked on a recent... uh, well, on a Patreon episode that probably hasn't even aired yet about Screamo uh, music, and I was listening to a band called From Autumn to Ashes that I'd never listened to before, mm-hmm. but weirdly made me nostalgic. Even though I'd never heard it before, it, felt, it seemed so like early, mid-2000s mm-hmm. uh, that I was like, this is making me nostalgic for movie music I haven't heard before. Anyway, so it uh, sounded great on my TweakedArdia.com earbuds. You can find those at a low, low price at TweakedArdia.com, but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one-third off that low, low price and no shipping charges so go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking what's your secret begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 bite clear aligners are doctor directed and delivered to your door treatment costs thousands less than braces plus they offer flexible financing Accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, okay, so uh, like I said, um, that's going to need an edit. Uh, we um, <laughs> uh, That edit's going to need an edit. Uh, we have a lot to get to. Uh, or we'll just leave it like that. So let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. Uh, we're, we're doing our top 10 of 2018. Right, it's the, but it's never just 10. Uh, no, of course not. That's what we call the episode. Yeah. But we go all in. You know, mm-hmm. this is a whole year of, of research. A year plus, we, we wait until the episode before the Oscars um, because that's the last moment that anyone cares about the previous year. <laughs> you yeah. know what I'm saying? Monday, February 25th or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's 2019. Do you know Pretty what I'm much, saying? Yeah. Uh, so, so this is when we, when we cram it in. So, um, 
we don't just do a top 10, as you said, but we do in keeping in the spirit of counting down a top 10, we start from the bottom and work our way up. Right. So we will start as we always do with our absolute least favorite movies of the year. I always feel a little bit of guilt saying worst. Yeah. I've even in my notes, I just write least favorite. Yeah. But then when we post the BP, a thing on the website it's going to be battleship pretensions worst movies of 2018 but, well that's a lot of people contributing to it so i'm right. more comfortable <laughs> it's less that. opinion it's like yeah. hey this is uh we polled yeah four out of five dentists agree <laughs> yeah exactly so Gotti is terrible so my least favorite movie of 2018 should come to little surprise people who listen to the podcast or have read uh, my review of the movie but it's adam mckay's vice um, I wish I could say it was mine uh, it, just it, because it, I hate the movie so much. Yeah. But there is a film that I hate more. Okay. Um, I, I just, it, you know, I, I believe, I feel like I say some version of this whenever it comes to my least favorite movies. I believe that cinema is art across the board. It's all mm-hmm. art, but there's something so unthought out and uncurious about vice that it is the most superficial version of art that there could be. It's literally just me telling you what I think and not, you know, and only making superficial and usually insulting, uh, attempts to dress it up as, as, as personal expression. Um, it was the most exhausting movie of the year for me to sit through, uh, because it had no curiosity, and it had nothing it had no, there was nothing that was really interesting about the movie yeah i mean uh on facebook i i saw like a promoted uh post for vice and in the comments somebody had said like adam mckay has come a long way since snl and i was like i don't think he has <laughs> honestly i mean i would have said that after the big short maybe sure i absolutely. like the big short a lot yeah you like it more than i do but even i would say like okay there's there's something here but vice feels like a sketch or a di- uh, an snl yep. digital short stretched out to two hours and it's every bit as deep as that. Uh, and it is, it's a shame. Uh, when I think of my least favorite, it is not vice, but, um, and I'm not transitioning into mine yet. You know, um, I think you can, if you okay. want, we have a lot to get to. This is usually our longest episode of yeah. the year. So there are, um, you know, there, there are movies that are just, you know, they're like lower budget horror movies or something like that. And they're bad, but who cares? I hate to put it that right. way. Yeah. Usually the stuff that, over the years, what I have come to find is the movies that I cite as my least favorite are the ones that had a great deal of potential mm. and just squandered it, often due to some type of... I, I don't like to level the accusation of laziness, but I'm willing to do so. I think okay. Vice is incredibly lazy. But it seems so ambitious like the the various little comedic conceits that he has yeah. some and people like look Christian at, Bale look, gaining 40 something pounds yeah. or whatever yeah and you know i think people uh some people were fooled by that um and i think the the academy obviously was fooled by that and the thing that bothers me you know what's strange is that i was so angry uh when donald trump got the nomination the mm-hmm. republican nomination because part of me was like oh now he's going to think that everything he's done has been like validated. And then when he won, I was like, 
there's no, not that he was going to be introspective anyway, but if, if he had been like trounced uh-huh. in the, in the primary, then it's like, okay, a clear message has been sent to everybody, but also to him specifically. Yeah, although I don't, I don't give him much credit in terms of introspection. No oh my, what. no, of course, yeah, he would, of course not. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I think I like the idea of somebody who is just such a bully being told, no, you can't do what you're doing and expect uh-huh. to succeed. Similarly, um, while I don't necessarily think that Adam McKay is, is a bully or anything like that, I will say that the way he is approaching his subject is uh, what's wrong. I think that is what is wrong with uh, the larger discourse. Okay. Um, a complete lack of curiosity, nothing but condemnation. And I'm fine with condem- uh, condemning somebody's actions, but if you're going to make a movie about them, you, it needs to be more than that. Yeah. I mean, the, the you example know. you always use is Oliver Stone's Nixon, which yeah. is not a perfect movie, but it is uh, a much better guide of, of yeah. uh, in terms of how to do this. Yeah. To me, yeah. Those are the two that you you put them next to each other or if you you go all over you, you didn't see w if no, you if you uh if you put w next to vice mm. you know similar material similar characters but one is just so much and and a condemning attitude of what happened but like one is just so much more curious to Who use that word Dick cheney and w richard dreyfus oh yeah and definitely played him as the villain of the piece uh-huh. um but Either way, like you can, it, there there are different things to condemn George W. Bush for. Like if we're looking in this at at these characters as characters, um, and Oliver Stone does do that, but he can't he-, he can't help himself as much as he undeniably dislikes these people. He is still an artist, and he still feels a sense of responsibility to his material, regardless of what it is. And yeah, Vice feels no sense of responsibility. It's just anger. And there's there's nothing wrong with making a movie out of anger, but almost anything you do purely out of anger is not going to be particularly organized. And it's probably not going to be very nuanced either. Um, anyway. Okay. okay. What's your, sorry. Worst? I talked oh, more sorry. about, I talked more about your, that's okay. We got a lot favorite. to get to. Okay. <clears throat> so speaking of movies that have, that had potential, um, and everybody was excited about it. My least favorite movie is Shane Black's the predator. Um, I didn't, you see, didn't see No. I've only ever seen one Predator movie. I've seen Predator. I never saw Predator 2, either of the AVPs. I never saw Predators. You would enjoy Predators. And then Predator 2 has its moments. AVP, I didn't see the second one, but the first one is just like... I mean, that's the thing. Most of these are not that good. Uh But so many of us thought, like, Shane Black... He's a he's a very specific type of writer, a very specific type of director. He was involved with the franchise Mm -hmm. early on. Uh, if anybody can re-energize it, it'll be him. Um, and I feel like you can see where the studio interfered, but even where it didn't, it can be frustrating when, when a, a writer director says like, okay, well this is what I'm known for. So I'm just going to do a lot of that. And just, but without really any understanding I mean, I'm sure he understands he's a smart guy, but like without any appreciation of why people like that in the first place, like it, it felt like it was on autopilot. Um, as far as the, the humor and the characters, it's just so it's very 1980s. And I'm sure some people 
are refreshed by that throwback. I get it. But at the same time, it's just, you know, it's not as though the characters in the first predator are particularly subtle and nuanced, mm-hmm. but compared to these characters who can be boiled down to a single trait, um, you know, what, what is the, you know, what is the single trait of Carl Weathers character? It's like, well, okay, he's a little shady and all that, but there, there is more going on with him. And I feel like the characters in the predator are almost cartoonish and it's, uh, and it is a shame because it had a, it had a good cast. Um, and I also think in general, the action was very poorly done. And I, I consider Shane Black to be a pretty competent director but i don't know i know that there are reshoots and it kind of feels like it it's just it was a genuine mess and by the end it's like that was extremely unsatisfying okay so from least favorite we move on to overrated which i still want to continue to do this category every year but every year i'm less and less sure what it means (laughs) Yeah, you kind of have to go with your instinct yeah. on this one. So um, I'm going to do what I do every year, which is find sneaky ways to talk about more movies even than Neuron. I was, was going to so, do it too. Yeah. So the first one, I thought about doing this movie called The Domestics. No one saw it. Right. But the people who saw it inexplicably loved it. But I guess it's made for a certain kind of incredibly nihilistic horror fan. Okay. It's a Anyway, but I'm not talking The Domestics. It's not, I decided not to do it but i really think that movie is an uh ugly cynical uh movie and then next i thought about green book because green book is going to win has been winning awards and it's going to win more by the time you you know by 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 next week um but also i feel like the backlash against green book is large enough that i don't need to add to it like last year you and i both said like well obviously it would be three billboards but we do know enough people that do not care for it that i feel like yeah it's so I decided to pick a movie that's kind of uh, that, that I it represents a certain type of movie. That Vice is similar to this, but uh, I decided to pick um, uh, I'm, uh, Joel Edgerton's Boy Erased mm. as the most overrated movie, uh, even though it didn't end up being a big award season pre- presence. There were yeah, a couple really. of adaptation, you know, adapted screenplay. I think uh, Nicole Kidman a little uh, bit, right? Here and right. There. Um, but uh, it sort of represents a type of movie that is, uh, in its own way, no less curious than Vice. Mm-hmm. It's not as strident as okay. Vice because it's more, and, and it's not as smug as Vice, but it's the same sort of thing where it is, quote unquote, preaching to the choir, mm-hmm. but also expecting uh, just, it, it's. Uh, Vice wants you to be angry, like righteous anger. Mm-hmm. Boy Erased wants you to shake your head in disdain, which, yeah. again, not again. I, why do I always say again when I haven't said a thing before? It's because weird. you've probably said it over the... You, yeah. I, I know you've said some of this over yeah. the course of the podcast in general, so it's fine. The thing that Boy Erased is about, and the thing that the real uh, guy wrote his article and then subsequent book about, is something that I find to be horrendous. Mm-hmm. It is... Uh, the these um, gay conversion therapies uh, or anti-gay therapy, whatever you call them, are do, you know documented. They're outlawed in many states. There's it, it's it's mental anguish, torture. Sometimes, as depicted in the movie, even physical uh, torture, um, as only actually barely depicted in the movie, but hinted at that there's much more going on. Um, but 
I feel like that's not why Joel Edgerton made the movie. He didn't make the movie uh, to expose this thing. He made the movie so that other people who already feel the way that we do can pat ourselves on the back and each right. other on the back for disapproving of something that is so wildly heinous. Mm-hmm. It's uh, so it's it's just as insulting to me, and it's I feel like a bad. It's it makes me feel like a bad progressive or whatever. That my two least favorite movies are the movies aimed at progressives. But I I think that's like you were saying. It's not good for the. It doesn't do anything, or actually might hurt the discourse to be so sure of ourselves and so self congratulatory. I'm I'm much more. Uh, as a as a as a leftist, I'm much more interested in movies like Get Out sure. that that take um, uh, that I, that are movies on the one hand by liberals and largely for liberals, but not in this self congratulatory way. It's in a holding the mirror up, like, hey, you're not you're yeah. not perfect. You might be right about a certain number of things. Yeah. That doesn't make uh, mean you're perfect. You, uh, you, you're probably fucking up too. Um, and boy erased just like vice leaves no real room for that. You never yeah. saw it, right? I didn't. I, yeah, mean, I, don't, you I was, don't need to. I was curious partially cause I had heard such great things about Russell Crowe and I keep waiting. I, I'm, I'm excited to see him kind of res- like a resurgence, uh, as like an older character actor. And I had heard that he was great. He is really, really good. And definitely he is, um, bringing much more to the character because the character, he plays the dad Mm -hmm. and the the screenplay only really shows you the character, the the dad from Lucas Hedges characters point of point of view. Um, which is not necessarily if that's a choice, whatever, but, uh, Russell Crowe is bringing much more that isn't on the page to the movie. Yeah. It's, but honestly, between you and a number of other people, and then the fact that I, I like the gift more than you, but the gift is pulpy. Uh-huh. And I think he actually, I, uh, Joel Edgerson, I think, does pulpy pretty well. But this is not pulpy material, so why but, on earth should he? But there's a way to do it. You know, this is, it's funny you mention it because I wasn't going to uh, mention Ben is back. It's not going to be on my, on my list right. today. But that's a movie that is a, you know, addiction drama. Right. But unlike the much lamer Beautiful Boy this year, mm-hmm. actually makes it more interesting by kind of turning it into this crime thriller. Yeah. Do you, like, did you see Ben is back? No, but when Do I you saw know the, the premise, yeah, it's, yeah. it's Yuli's Gold. It reminds me of Yuli's Gold. Really? Okay. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen Yuli's Gold in twenty years, uh, probably. Um, but uh, it, yeah, it's a, it's like a mystery thriller type movie that is the the backbone of it is this mother's uh, love for her addicted son. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is a way to take non-pulpy material and execute in a pulpy way. Absolutely. Uh, and do it well. Ben, ben is back is, uh, it's, I think a little bit underrated. It's not going to be my number one underrated, but, uh, yeah. uh, that's a, that's a good movie. What, okay. What is your, what are you considering the most underrated <sighs> film of 2018? It's tough because yeah. Um, I did not like, this is not my choice, but I did not like widows as much as a lot of other people. Um, I did not, by the time I saw, Mission Impossible Fallout it was it was put up so high uh-huh. that I was disappointed by it but I think my overrated is a film that I still think is okay okay um in fact at the time I think I was rather enthusiastic about it but um in the same way that The Predator became my least favorite um Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You became oh. my most overrated um it's at the time I compared it to Darren Aronofsky's mother. All right. Which is 
they're both incredibly audacious and that is a very good thing and i think audacity mixed with humor goes yeah, a long that, way goes a long way that was me. my gonna be my first objection is that sorry to bother you has a sense of humor about right. itself uh, i don't know if it has a sense of humor about itself okay that's i think that's the thing like i think it's actually because a film that was willing to look in on itself would realize that the sins that it is laying at the at the feet of this corporation where it's like people sign up and they can be clothed and fed and uh-huh. housed but they got to they have to work for it. it's like so what you're describing is they will get what they need what they want according to their needs and they will get stuff from them according to their ability you but it's still a voluntary exchange like you are literally describing and depicting socialism but you're calling actually saying slavery. but you're calling it slavery yeah, but they volunteered for it and you're going to and you're somehow going to take this and bash corporations for it you but can, i think like i think he, i think you're miss uh, you're i think the movie makes the point that you're saying volunteer you're saying they did it, did it by choice but that the movie's argument is that capitalism reduces choice so much that this becomes all that's left to them sure as opposed to a situation where it is the only thing that they can do. I just feel like there's a better way to do it. But communism and socialism are not. Uh, I feel like when I don't want to get into a political debate, but okay. I feel when 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 a lot of times when conservatives condemn communism and socialism, they're condemning the totalitarian dictatorial right. versions of that as opposed to more socialist, I don't know, Scandinavian countries or, or, or whatever in which these things are voted into office by the will of or right. into, into policy by the will of of the people so there's a difference but when you say no choice the difference between socialism and totalitarianism is what i'm saying right there's been a lot of overlap in the past in the in, yeah. in various parts of the world but I, I i i don't think that you can necessarily equate the two because you're missing i think what advocates of socialism are actually advocating for except the thing is the point he's ma- he's he's making an anti not even necessarily anti capitalist he's making an anti corporatist uh, argument mm-hmm. with that company which is fine uh, I'm in, I'm very much in favor of an anti corporatist uh, attitude but um, but what it's it's this idea of like he's saying this is something that this is something that could happen using imagery of something that did happen but when mm-hmm. it did happen it wasn't under capitalism it was under a very specific type i'm going to say a very specific type of communism yeah um and and that's the thing is like i feel like uh, what what i think was i saying this with vice that like clearly there's an anger underneath um sorry to bother you which i don't which doesn't which doesn't upset me um and while I do think that it's a, a much better film than Vice and a funnier one than Vice, um, which I think makes a huge difference, um, I just feel like he could have worked. I feel like he could have been a bit more disciplined because, like satire, when when satire is done a hundred percent right, it's like this thing is airtight. Uh, it is really wonderful, and like, and this one, it felt, certainly in the last act, it starts getting really sloppy and and all that yeah that's my problem with it is i mean i I don't i like obviously like it much more than you do but the thing that kept it from being the upper echelon is that yeah it it, it's a really unwieldy movie yeah because it felt like boots riley maybe wasn't sure he'd ever get to make a movie again and so he threw everything into it and i really respect that it's certainly a fun watch but it does kind of feel like it keeps going at a certain point because uh because it can't sort of stay on track and i do think that like the central conceit of 
or no, sorry, the, the initial conceit of like white guy voice. I feel like that, that thread gets lost, which kind of bums me out. Um, yeah, but I also think that's kind of intentional. It's, yeah. it's supposed to be sort of like a, a head fake as it were. Yeah. I do enjoy, uh, <laughs> when McKee Stanfield is required to like, rap in oh, front of everybody that part scene of, is marvelous that's, that's my favorite part of the movie yeah. and such this is the nature and we 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 try to talk about this every year when we talk about overrated and underrated it's entirely possible that the overrated film is higher on my list than the underrated hmm. it's more just there are issues i have with it that i think are genuinely there that other people do not mention mm-hmm. and i think in the case of something like sorry to bother you uh, something being satire uh, gives it not a total free pass, but I think a lot of people are willing to forgive a lot of stuff. Satire tends to be kind of broad and sometimes a little messy. Um, but I do think that it's it's an imperfect film, but all the elements are there for for it to have been really something amazing. And I think the I think the actors all do a great job. I think Army mm-hmm. Hammer is is marvelous. So it's not a film that I hate. Yeah. It's just a film that I felt like was overrated. Yeah. Yeah, the acting is, yeah, Tessa Thompson, Lakeith Stanfield, Danny Glover, yeah. uh, Army Hammer. You've also got Stephen Yun, who, uh, yeah. his performance in Burning this year got the bigger attention, which is yeah. correct. It's a great movie and a great performance, but mm-hmm. uh, he's also really good uh, in this. And he's, as someone who didn't watch The Walking Dead, he's um, only recently become an actor that I, mm. uh, that I'm, you know, someone to watch in my, in my mind. Yeah. But I'm sure people who've watched The Walking Dead for a decade have known that he's good. Uh, uh, he got, he got better over the course of the show, I think. Uh, I feel like TV does that sometimes like long running TV shows become like it's, you know, yeah. it's you're, you're constantly training uh, yeah. a certain muscle. It's like, like it's like being on the stage in the sense that mm-hmm. you, you just have to keep doing it and yeah. it's not. So it becomes, you know, there's the like, uh, in you know interpretive artistic part of acting but then yeah. there's also like the craft and work of yeah. acting and uh and i feel like people yeah i feel like I, I can i can name a number of actors who started off on tv shows that ran seven or so years and uh weren't that great at first and ended up finding more levels as the show went on because they uh got from the character better and got from themselves better i think uh honestly mahershal ali when i first saw him on the 4400 was that it? 4,400? Yeah. Um, which did not run very long, but I remember thinking like, he's kind of clunky. Like, I don't think yeah. he's that great of an actor. And then he would, then he was a regular, a semi-regular on like house of cards. He was in predators incidentally. Um, and I think he just, and now, I mean, I, I don't love green book, but I think he's great in green book. Mm-hmm. And so he's, he's, uh, he's now a, an extremely reliable actor. But I remember when I first saw him in, in uh, the 4400s, like, oh boy. Have you seen Elite Battle Angel yet? No, I really want to. I do too, even though I don't <laughs> think, I don't actually think it's, I'm going to like it, but yeah. I was like, yeah, I, I want to see this. Look, the fact is, it's entirely possible that now that you and I are doing our top 10, uh, tonight I will go see Alita ba- a Battle Angel. <laughs> yeah, either I'm gonna either have that to... or The Kid Who Would Be King. Like, there are 2019 oh, yeah. movies I haven't gotten to. No, I have. Um... I've taken the temperature of my marriage and come to the realization that if I'm going to see Alita Battle Angel, it's something I'm going to be doing alone. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So let's move on. Oh, no, we get to we get to get into the positive stuff now mm. um, with a little bit of negativity aimed at people sure. who didn't get it. Exactly. Um, so, uh, again, I, I, I 
I'm going to pretend that I hate to keep mentioning the Patreon, but patreon.com slash battleship pretension. But we recently talked on a Patreon episode that again, probably hasn't aired yet. We banked a bunch of them. Uh, we mentioned the idea of a movie being a good movie. That is a bad adaptation of its source material. Sure. And I feel like I never saw Dario Argento's Suspiria, mm. but I feel like people, a lot of people's problems with Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria comes from an attachment to the original. Mm-hmm. And I, and so I feel like my never having seen the original freed me to just take Luca Guadagnino's movie on its own terms. Um, and I found it to be, uh, not only lush and enveloping, but also, um, audacious and, uh, committed mm-hmm. very much committed to what it's trying to do at its full you know I, I i understand you've seen argento's movie i saw right? the original yeah yeah. it's like what 90 minutes 100 minutes or yeah it's like pretty fast yeah. yeah this one's over two and a half hours um and i've complete you know i and i wonder maybe i've been guilty of this in the past because i never liked martin scorsese's the departed which also similarly adds an, an hour to yeah. the story of Infernal Affairs. I've always preferred Infernal Affairs. Maybe if I'd never, if I hadn't seen Infernal Affairs first, maybe I'd like The Departed more. I was uh, talking with somebody about uh, uh, True Detective. Okay, that by the time I got around to it, both seasons one and two were available, and I had heard that two is so much worse than one, and that's what people always said. It's worse than one. So I was like, maybe I'll watch two first oh. so that I don't have that expectation. And I watched it, and I was like, okay, this is like a James Elroy novel. Like It's about a certain type of corruption, and then then I saw season one. I definitely like season one more, Yeah, but it's like, Oh, this is like a Cormac McCarthy novel. Like they're very, okay. they're trying different things. And yeah, I gave up on season two about three episodes in. So mm, maybe, maybe I'm part of that problem too. Is, I'd like the first season. It's definitely imperfect. Uh, okay. and, but, but yeah, the idea of like, I, I never speaking of Martin Scorsese. I never really responded to his Cape fear, but I love the original. Um, I love both, and I saw them. I, I think saw I would the have, first one first, and this and Martin Scorsese's second. Yeah, I think I would have a more of an appreciation for the remake now that I'm a little bit older. But um, mm-hmm. but yeah, that's that's. Uh, do you, do you find that that was a common complaint by people that didn't like the the remake? I don't think that 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 people came out and said it that way. This is not. I don't like this because of. Yeah. This. It's just like Stephen King has perfectly valid reasons for not liking sure. Stanley Kubrick's adaptation, but they are all rooted in the fact that yeah. he wrote The Shining and he's attached to that. Yeah. And so um I don't think people are coming out and yeah, literally saying I don't like this because it's not as good as the original, but I do think the an attachment to the original, which again is an understandable thing. I have it in other in other ways. Um but I, uh, I think that's the root of most of the complaints. And I, and I think that, uh, I hypothesized that my lack of familiarity with the source material is what, uh, allowed me to enjoy the movie so much. And you know, something that I actually heard people complaining about with the, the new one is, is the length, uh, and saying like, you didn't need to do that. And it's like, yeah, but I know it's not, a, I don't, I can't guarantee it's the same people, but I remember when Steven Soderbergh's Solaris came out, which was much shorter <laughs> than the original. And they're like, the whole point of the original is that it's long. like, yeah, I, I think I, I was one of those people. I mean, it's definitely more streamlined and I think I like the original more, but like, yeah, it's, he just 
takes the basic plot points and it's like, okay, that's what we're going to focus on and, yeah. and have it be less atmospheric and more character based. Um, but it's, it's just interesting that I think an argument can be made with film people that if you're going to remake something that is revered, you'll, you'll be lucky to get half the audience, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cause I think people but are going to be naturally it, resistant to and, it. But my, yeah, my, my, argument my stance is that this is the way to do it don't be too beholden yeah absolutely um anyway so uh, what was your what did you consider the most underrated movie of 2018 so much of what i will say is similar to what you said um that i'm not familiar with the uh source material though a number of people my age um are uh and that is a wrinkle in time oh uh which you enjoyed yeah i did and and i did as well i don't think it's a perfect film i think you know this is an example i think looking at my list i think sorry to bother is probably higher than a wrinkle in time but uh but i do think that a lot of people really bash the movie and i'll say in my in my circles um apparently a wrinkle in time has like some rather the the book has some like rather heavy like christian messaging okay and apparently that was taken out Uh. or that was that this is why part of me wishes i had read the book because we were like oh i heard they took out this and this and this i saw the film and i'm like i see plenty of christian messaging in here are you kidding me like yeah but that's the thing is a lot of people admittedly uh there are also uh just film people we know that didn't really care for it but like a lot of the argument i was hearing was that it doesn't do what these people liked about the book um and to me i just feel like i mean the that that aspect of the messaging seems pretty straightforward but also i think the film is so effective and there's i mean there's a, a a part in the film that made me cry and it, and when i was telling jen about it later it made me cry again and it's it's this this moment where uh the main character is talking about her faults and then reese witherspoon oh, yeah. says like such beautiful faults yeah. and it's like oh as someone who yeah regularly wishes he wasn't himself uh because <laughs> because of my faults like the idea of finding beauty within the imperfect uh, of a person I think is so effective and I feel like there's some really uh, some solid imagery in the film I think there's some great visuals some disturbing visuals of what we we talked about Michael Pena's character yeah I think Reese Witherspoon I'm a big Reese Witherspoon fan and she's great I think she does a great job and is she the one who turns into like a dragon I don't recall now all right Um, you got a movie with Reese Witherspoon turning into a dragon yeah what, do, what are you complaining about? Or Reese Witherspoon and someone turns into a dragon. Either I way, it's fine. It was Mindy K- I think it is Reese Witherspoon. Who I think turns it into, is too, but, but now I don't recall. It's not. It's not Oprah, right? It's one of the other two. Yeah, ladies. And and I also just love. I, I love the moment. Like this is a film that is curious about people. It's mm-hmm. a film that even the the bully, you know, at school, we get a glimpse of what her inner monologue is and yeah. she makes herself miserable yeah uh yeah you know and so i i it's again it's an yeah. imperfect film but i think it it deserves to be looked at it looked at again i think yeah um i have a problem with um i think i uh, have a tendency to not um 
be sympathetic toward bullies in movies. Sure. Um, and I like when, so it, early on in the movie, when Storm Reed just throws the basketball in the, in the bully's face, do you yeah. remember that? I was like, yes. And I don't think that's how you're supposed to feel in the moment. Same as in Moonlight when in the middle section oh, with, the chair. with the chair, I was yeah. like, fuck yeah, get that guy. I don't think you're supposed to feel like that. I think you are supposed to feel it a little bit, but what I, but I think, I think you're supposed to feel that in the moment. And then later, mm-hmm it's not like you're supposed to retroactively condemn the main character, but you just see that right. there's more to everything than what, yeah. than what we thought. Okay. So now we get our, uh, what do we call it? Lightning round where I run through my five honorable mentions and you do your five, right? But stop me if any of these end up being on your top 10. Okay. So honorable mentions in, uh, ascending order, um, Tamara Jenkins, private life, uh, which I, I think is a movie that um, largely got kind of buried. It, 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 uh, I saw it at Sundance. It wasn't among other people's favorites. People didn't hate it, but there was, it was a mixed crowd. And then it ended up coming out on Netflix in like September, October, mm-hmm. I think October maybe. Um, and much like I don't know, Land of Steady Habits just sort of got yeah. swallowed by the Netflix Netflix thing. But uh, I, I think it's a um, it's in it's a movie that's very ambitious but also very patient you know mm. it takes its full time with its two hour and ten minute running time or whatever it is um, to not be really specifically narratively narrative focused that has a general like this is what these people are going through and they have to go through all of it and we have to too okay I can't t- talk too long I can tell you one organization uh, that recognized some of the uh, qualities of the film. Yeah. And that is The Beepies, which nominated it for Best Actor and Best Screenplay. Okay, so next up for me is Black Klansman. Spike Lee's Black Klansman. Nope. Uh, Wait, no, that's not going to come up later? I'm saying, no, we're not talking about that. No, I'm (laughs) saying uh, it it will not be coming up, so go Uh, I think it's his best film since The 25th Hour. Um, That's for sure. It's, uh, and, I mean, there's, I, I feel like Spike Lee because he's so outspoken, be it about, you know, um, social politics or about the New York Knicks or whatever, like Mm -hmm. people tend to engage with his films on the level of what they're saying, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, but I think we often overlook and I, my, you know, my leftist heart, uh, wants to angrily chalk it up to racism. Maybe there is some of that, but I think, in terms of craftsmanship and artistic know-how, I think Spike Lee is one of the best directors working today and has been for the past quarter century or, or more at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also one of the best documentarians working today and people don't give him credit yeah. for that. Uh, and this movie actually has, it. Um, I luckily saw it before uh, it came out. So I didn't know that it ends with a, essentially a documentary section after yeah. the story, it becomes a documentary and it's, uh, um, uh, incredibly rousing. Um, and along the lines of what people expect from, from Spike Lee, people talk about him like he's yeah. the black Oliver stone or something. You know what I mean? But he's also the other thing about that's that I didn't expect about black Klansman is how much it, conforms to the buddy cop genre and does that well yeah and how much it's a comedy mm-hmm. it's a really funny movie yeah uh and but also really emotional and really stirring i mean when you think about it like all of the stuff that we say vice did wrong uh-huh. i think black Klansman did right 
Yes. Yeah. You know, dealing with some pretty heavy stuff. Yeah. But still being very interested in the characters and, and yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and also um, another movie like that that I think is from a technical standpoint a little more more clumsily executed. But the hate you give is a movie that mm. I think did these things much much better right. with, with, with much more curiosity and and uh, and interest. Uh, unfortunately, I think it's just kind of a clunky movie in some time in some ways. All right. Next up for me on the honorable mentions is Alfonso Cuarón's Roma. We're not going to be talking about that later. Nope. Okay. I liked it. <laughs> yeah, um, we're both, uh, I don't know. We're not part of the Roma backlash or at least I'm no, not at all. I obviously like, I put my honorable mentions, but, um, it does feel like, uh, it, in some ways, like kind of how I felt about moonlight the year it came out that I was like, yes, I like this movie a lot. This is a yeah. beautiful movie. I don't, I'm not really, there's something that I'm not, emotionally connecting with. And I feel like that's what it, with Roma, I really, really appreciate the movie. Um, what it, what it tries to do and what it does. But most of my appreciation with it is on an intellectual level. I did, did the movie yeah. never brought me to tears or any sort of real emotional elation. It was just a lot of me being like, wow, that was really well done. Like, yeah, which is, odd I think like when you think when you look at his films in the past I feel like they're they're very much about how you're feeling in the moment like you don't you certainly don't want to over intellectualize gravity because um, yeah. I don't think it holds up but as an experience uh, as a deeper experience you know primal experience I think it works really well but also stuff like Itumama Tambien like I think he I, I always thought of him as an emotional filmmaker and I do think there are our emotional moments in Roma, but yeah, it never quite, don't get me wrong. It was not in contention for overrated or anything like yeah, that. Yeah. It I is, feel bad that this is one of my, yeah. this is my what the 13th favorite movie of the year. Yeah. And we're talking about it in terms of yeah. it being overrated, yeah. but a if you want to hear a film that's intellectually engaging is not bad either. Yes. You know? Uh, but we, we, I, I, I kind of feel like we, talked at length about Roma on the BP's awards, uh, premium slash Patreon episode. Right. So, which um, is not yet available. Not till tomorrow. Right. Okay. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I, I liked Roma, uh, quite a lot. Yeah. And a great cast. I mean, uh, they're mm-hmm. all doing really, really good work. Um, yeah. one thing that I, I know it sounds weird. Uh, I do think that, and I don't remember their, their names now, unfortunately, but I feel like the woman who plays the mother, it's uh, Marina something, Marina yeah. de Trevina, something like something that. Like yeah. That. And it's, uh, and I think I think she does a great job, but like the guy who is the the boyfriend, not even a boyfriend. I think like the guy who has gotten her pregnant and his uh, little performance there at the beginning yeah. of the film, yeah, uh, like that is like old school Coron, yeah. where it's just like he's not going to shy away from anything. It's it's not done for shock value, and I don't think it's even completely done for humor it's there it's funny yeah but also like when you have the character sit down and we've seen characters in the in in the past who are like super into martial arts and all that but it's just like this superficial thing uh but here he sits down just kind of like after this thing rattles off the difficulty of his life Mm -hmm. and that this that martial arts gave him something to focus on yeah and it's moments like that that just seem so they seem like a little bit raw a little bit vulnerable um those really jump out at me yeah. um 
but yeah, and and I don't want to take anything away from the lead actress, but I think the whole ensemble is great. Yeah, uh, the my other favorite, not a character, my other favorite presence in the movie is the father's car. <laughs> I think because uh, I think maybe yeah. one of the best single sequences of cinema in 2018 is the first time the father comes home in the car and yeah. trying to fit it into that narrow yeah. uh, driveway with the walls on either either side. Did you find that but stressful the, at oh, all? Oh yeah, but yeah. also funny at the same time. Yeah. And then that, that car ends up going through more and more things. They, clearly the car the yeah. car is more the car represents the father in the father's absence because the father is absent from so much of the movie. Yeah. Um, and so every time it goes through more and more uh, damage uh, I kept finding it funnier and funnier. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, we can't and, talk too and the about. fact that the car is so it's just this big ostentatious thing that doesn't really fit anywhere yeah. in these characters lives not unlike the father himself yeah anyway all right so next up is a film i don't think you saw uh, uh i think the director's name is Jer- jeremiah zagar it's called we the animals um, no i didn't uh and this is the story of uh, starts out as being the story of three young brothers uh, in um, an unstable, dysfunctional household with a, um, an abusive father who comes and goes, much like the father in Roma, I guess, uh, and a mother who is a caring mother when she's thinking about being a mother, but is often too preoccupied with uh, her, um, you know, her dependence on her abusive, uh, I don't know if they're actually married, but the father of the, mm-hmm. of the three boys. Uh, over the course of the movie, it becomes clear that the youngest boy is really the the focus, um, and uh, it becomes increasingly clear that he's he, I guess, is gay. I don't know. We were talking about like an eight year old kid, but uh, so I'm not really sure when that sort of realization. Not, not being gay myself, I don't know when that uh, when that happens. But it's clear that he is different than his brothers mm. in in this effeminate way, and that he has feelings towards other boys that. Uh, his brothers don't have um and i've heard people see the movie and say that it was depressing and i certainly understand it's not like things suck for this family and for this boy especially but i also find the fact that um it's i also find the movie to be kind of hopeful about his future mm-hmm. you know i guess maybe this part of this i try not to bring too much outside stuff in but knowing that the book that it's based on is a semi-autobiographical like in real life the kid grew up to be a published author <laughs> just right. you know uh, doing okay i guess but um uh i so i like that there's some hope i also like that the movie doesn't so many movies about kids who are suffering or kids who are troubled are adopting the point of view of adults of the parents or just us adults being like, Oh, we still feel so bad for this kid. Uh, this movie is not afraid to see things from the young boys point of view. And it is also not afraid as much as he is the victim of so much of the circumstance. The movie's not afraid to show how fucking angry he is mm-hmm. and how much his anger takes on almost scary, uh, uh, dimensions, but also finds that he can, channel those through art he's a, he he draws under his bed he hides drawings and often these drawings are monsters tearing his parents like physically tearing his parents into um but uh it's something to be said uh for the 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 power of disturbing art mm-hmm. you know uh another movie that did that this year is the house that jack built in a much different way 
Um, but I'm eager to return to We the Animals. I will probably never watch The House that Jack Built again in my life. Right. <laughs> All right, and then my final honorable mention. And I felt this is, there's always these ones on the cusp where I'm like, I, I my hate num- my number 11 is the same. Yeah. I hate that. I don't, didn't get to put this in my, in my top 10, but, uh, Hirokazu Koreeda's shoplifters. Um, I am always so excited to see one of his movies. Cause you talk, I mean, talking about as I did with the animals, having patience and, and empathy toward characters, shoplifters is loosely inspired by, uh, real events of uh, a group of people who were living together sort of as a family, but really just um, collecting the pension checks of the old woman or of a dead relative that they have buried into the house and not told the authorities is dead and, uh, mm-hmm. and are continuing to get checks. Um, and so this is about a family of criminals. Only two of them are actually related by blood, but they pretend to be a family, um, and mostly survive by these sca- sort of scams, pension checks or shoplifting as the title <laughs> would, would suggest. Um, and so these people are, are criminals and someone, and some, a, a number of the things that they do in the movie are things that on paper we would find unforgivable. Mm. <laughs> they kidnap a girl. <laughs> they, yeah, they hide this woman's body and continue to collect her pension checks. But, you also just see them as people and you see them as a family who actually do care about one another. And I think Coriata's ability to uh, be so accepting of, of people and, and to, to not judge them even while not forgiving them or like the father in after the storm, which was one of his more recent movies is not a good dad. Um, shouldn't be bringing his son to the racetracks and betting all the money or whatever, mm-hmm. but Coriata doesn't judge him, nor does he forgive him. And shop. This is a movie that is about a whole group of people like that, that en- ends up becoming, uh, in- incredibly emotionally, uh, effective, by the end when you realize just how much you as a viewer have become attached to this, this makeshift family. Um, uh, yeah, it's another of in a long line of great Coriata movies. Uh, in fact, probably one of the best. All right. Uh, so it's my turn, right? Yep. Okay. So, uh, just a heads up. There are a lot of movies that I didn't see this year. Um, uh, there was a I did a, a last big push and saw stuff like Roma and Cold War and a few other movies um, but yeah there are still a few things missing I didn't see Burning and I thought I, I feel like I would enjoy yeah, it you would um, I did not see Firstman okay I think um, you'd like that too I think so I like that one a lot uh, let's see I did not see Leave No Trace and I think I would love that okay um, yeah, and I think there are probably like one or two others that I thought I would like that I did not get a chance to see before this. I'm sorry. Mia Culpa um, is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, and so a, as a result, like my top 15, which is ultimately what we're talking about here, um, is, is filled with movies that, that a lot of people have seen by a lot of people. I of course mean in our circles. Sure. Yes. The vast majority of people have not seen any of these and maybe have not heard of any of them, <clears throat> but, uh, but I know that there will probably, there will probably be some overlap with yours. Okay. Uh, can you ever forgive me? Uh, we won't be talking about it today. It's we a, will not it's be a talking great about movie. it. Yeah, uh, that's one that really, when I first saw it, I had an appreciation for the two, you know, big performances. Um, and then that was kind of it. But it really stayed with me. 
and just kind of grew in my head and I had a, a, a deeper appreciation for the screenplay for all of the, the for the the larger ensemble and for the atmosphere just these quiet dusty bookstores mm. like I cannot it's been a while since I've seen a film that so perfectly captures what it feels like to be lonely mm. um, and especially a certain type of lonely um, because we do get, you know, uh, like with Richard E. Grant, Richard E. Grant, we get like a, a raucous type of loneliness. Um, but then with other characters, like the Dolly Wells character, I think I love her. She's one of my favorite characters of last year. Um, we get the the quiet type of loneliness, and um, and it's interesting because the film is very much about the character trying to find her own identity and all that. Um, and yet the the undercurrent of of loneliness and looking for some kind of companionship romantic or otherwise uh is something that really stayed with me it is it is the film is singled out for its script in the two performances but i really feel like it's it's everything a movie should be like it's 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 the whole package everything feeds into everything else um okay next up is eighth grade oh we'll be talking about that later figured uh and then next up, look, I know I've been talking about it a lot. Screw you. <laughs> Avengers Infinity War. Oh, cool. Um, which, and, and I've talked about it enough on the show that I don't want to talk about it that much. I will just say that, like, it had, I mean, it, it, it was almost, it had an almost impossible task. Not merely juggling all these characters, but being, it's like, this is the film that was sort of, that, was hinted at over the years. And so it really does need to be a culmination of 10 years in this extended universe. And being the, like, first off Marvel's, I guess the conjure, there's the conjuring universe, but uh, a lot of other things have attempted the, the, the cinematic universe and have failed. Marvel has succeeded. And so if you're going to be the pinnacle of this very this new kind of thing uh you need to be it can't just be spectacle it also needs to be emotionally satisfying and i think it really is and it overcomes the what many including myself would say is like the the marvel villain problem where the villains are two for the most part are two-dimensional and it's just like oh they just want to conquer something (laughs) Gosh, I wonder if they're going to shoot a blue laser into the sky or, you know, something like well, that. The thing, I mean, uh, the fact that the MCU has been so successful seems to have emboldened them. And that's so yeah. let them do let them do things like even make Guardians of the Galaxy in the first place, much yeah. less make uh, it a, a hugely successful and uh, a, a franchise. And it also emboldened them to address this villain problem head on by mm-hmm. making Thanos kind of the protagonist of Infinity yeah. War. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a good choice. Um, yeah, I mean, 2018 had three good Marvel villains, Michael B. Jordan. So you've got Killmonger, you have Claw, who, uh-huh. who we'd seen before, but not as okay. developed. And then you have Thanos. And so okay, I thought you were going to talk about a, a ghost from Ant-Man and the Wasp. <laughs> not a great villain. Well, I not, like Ant-Man uh, and the Wasp uh, a lot, but it definitely is part of the villain problem. It's not a particularly interesting villain. Well, and I do think that like the villain isn't even really a villain for the most part. It's more just, which I think is actually kind of novel though, not particularly satisfying. Um, okay. So next up is 
Yorgos Lanthimos is the favorite. Uh, we won't be talking about that later we'll either. Not be, I forgot how much you hate Yorgos Lanthimos. Um, <laughs> no, I, I I liked the movie for sure. Yeah. Yeah, there's just... You just saw a lot of stuff this year. Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah. yeah, I count 173 2018 releases. I did wow. that I did that last night to, before before doing this when I was putting everything in order. That's crazy. Uh, yeah. And Vice is... <laughs> like, that really means something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, uh, The Favorite is, I think, a, a really marvelous film and one that I was kind of trepidatious about um because yoga slanthimos had not written it but um that's silly of me because i do subscribe to the auteur theory and some of the best filmmakers who make very consistent films not just visually but also thematically from one film to the next are seldom their own writers Mm -hmm. and so um so i was kind of worried that the film wouldn't wouldn't fit in with his larger filmography but it absolutely does uh because of his command of tone his willingness to just go wherever the material needs to go but also surprisingly like i think it would be possible to look at the films of yorgos lanthimos and see him as uh, a misanthrope but i don't think he is at all i think he he doesn't hate his fellow man uh, we'll get there hang (laughs) on uh and so I do think that uh, I think what he doesn't he doesn't hate his fellow man, but what he does hate are like the various systems and expectations that we put on ourselves and each other um, as far as how we behave towards one another, towards ourselves. And I think he doesn't like that. And over the course of the last few films of his, like he strips that away and you see the humanity underneath. Um, because uh, like at the beginning of his films, everyone's just sort of playing their role. And then by the end, they're being themselves. And I feel like the, the favorite and, and his understanding that the same type of stuff that he explored in the lobster and killing the sacred deer could absolutely maybe even more so work in like a, a royalty setting. Yeah. I would say the only thing that kept me, cause I, yeah, I really loved it. Uh, the only thing that kept me from maybe putting it uh, higher on my own list is that I think the killing of a sacred deer did the transition from comedy to tragedy very smoothly. And mm. I feel like the favorite kind of has like a, a gear shift uh, at, a, at, a, at a certain, a little bit more of one at least uh, yeah. at a certain point. Um, Which I think but, I'm mostly, I think I'm mostly okay, but I agree with you. Um, I, but you made me think of the, the idea of directors um, maintaining their auteurist mm-hmm. uh, uh, trappings despite having different screenwriters. And it reminded me of, uh, there's a couple of screenwriters that have, that I feel like I liked their movies and then they direct them. And it's like, did you not, understand what was good about because yeah. i didn't like wind river um right. well, i didn't like sicario either but i liked he- uh, hell or high water yeah so i had expected so taylor taylor sheridan not understanding yeah. <laughs> his own and then i just was thinking about because i just recently rewatched uh probably one of my top five viewed movies ever in life i rewatched four weddings and a funeral mm-hmm. which is written by richard curtis and directed right. by mike newell and then richard curtis went on to write and direct love actually and i yeah. don't like love actually um and i actually do like 
some of love actually, but it's, it does not compare to four weddings and a funeral. And I would say Aaron Sorkin is another uh, example who directed Molly's game. But yeah, but also I I feel like with Aaron Sorkin, I saw it coming. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. No, no question. (laughs) Um, all right. Uh, sorry. Did you do do all five or no, I have one more to do, which is, um, the Zellner brothers damsel. This one broke my heart Uh to take out of my top 10. Um, I, I just, what is, what, I liked, uh, their previous film, Kamiko, the treasure hunter. And so I was really intrigued by like, okay, how are they going to handle a, uh, a Western? And they did it in a way that did not surprise me, uh, for them. But at the same time, it's just full of surprises. Um, and it features yet another great character performance by Robert Pattinson. Um, and some pretty amazing costume design for his care for all the characters, but his character, uh-huh. especially. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and then one of the, both the Zellner brothers are actually in it, but, um, I think David Zellner, uh, plays, he's the pastor. Uh, I'd, quote, yeah. Quote. I'd say he's kind of the lead yeah. Uh, yeah. of the film and he does a great job. Mia Vajikowska does a great job. It's, the the performances are all fine, but I think more just the screenplay is fascinating and the arc of these characters is fascinating. And as you and I have talked about on the show before, the tone is unique because the film starts as a straight as a mostly straightforward, albeit a little bit quirky Western and people speak in that type of that type of cadence. Uh, and then as the film shifts, once Mia Wasikowska shows up and has a bit and, and is allowed to have a bit more agency, um, it turns out she already did, but we're now seeing it. Uh, everything turns a little bit more modern. It seems almost a little uh, anachronistic, um, mm-hmm. but in a yeah. way that is exhilarating. And I think it's, it's a film that, you know, people talk about feminist film and I recognize that, you know, it's not only did a guy make it, but two guys made this film. But I do think that the points that it is making when we think about the damsel in distress and we think about the, the white knight or the guy, the guy in the white hat, whatever it is, the, the hero who comes to the rescue, it's a film that really deconstructs our assumptions of that. And I Mm -hmm. just, and does so in a way that is funny, that is effective, uh, emotionally. And I just really, I, I highly recommend people see it me too actually yeah um robert pattinson is uh great yeah he's always great uh he's very funny in this movie too yeah uh yeah his um and his his sip of whiskey uh, (laughs) it's very funny (laughs) and now that i think about it i mean it's also a film that has some very almost surreal visuals i think it starts it starts off with kind of a a surreal image oh yeah that's right with um Who's the actors in the first scene? Is it Robert Forster? Robert Forster, yeah. Is only in that one scene? Yeah. Um, but then we also we also get like the image of the the little horse and <laughs> it's just a it's butterscotch. Butterscotch, yeah. I believe, yeah. And yeah, it's it is a western certainly, but it also is it has just a lot of odd imagery and I think I think our listeners would enjoy it. Okay. Well, um Given what I now know about what is and isn't in your top 10, I feel like this is going to be a long episode because okay. we don't have that much overlap, unfortunately. Right. Um, so I will start. We're going to get into an hour and 10 minutes into the episode. We're getting into the top 10 list proper. Uh, I will start with my number 10 of the year. The only 
thing that the the academy and i agreed on because it's the only best picture nominee that is also in my top 10 bradley cooper's a star is born that's we'll talk about it later oh great okay so what's your number 10 all right okay we're doing it uh it is armando Iannucci's the death of stalin um have you seen it yeah okay yeah i love it and yes i recognize that in britain it's a uh 2017 film i think yeah um but yeah, I, I just, uh, I can't, I, I, I was talking with Scott about uh, Cold War and just that this was, for anybody who's kind of fascinated with the Soviet Union as I am, uh-huh. um, 2018 was a good year. Um, <laughs> uh, and so <clears throat> what I what I do love about it is that it is obviously dealing with some very dark material and we are, we don't totally shy away from that. We get people getting shot in the head and people begging for their lives and all that sort of thing. Um, but as is the case with Ian Nucci, I feel like he, he kind of takes his cues from a movie like Dr. Strangelove, which is about nuclear annihilation of the entire world. And yet finds humor in there. Uh, you know, with with movies like In the Loop and then uh, the show Veep and then a movie like this, you just see that, like, he he is one of the best, like, anti-establishment directors there is because not unlike Kubrick with uh, Dr. Strangelove, he realizes that, like, look at the amount of power these people have. And it turns out they're just people uh-huh. who make, who can be petty, who can be insecure and maybe making the argument like no one I'm not saying he's like libertarian or anything I don't think he or anarchist but I think he's making the argument like no one should have this much power it's because eventually obviously the power itself becomes the end goal and the way the characters interact and just and the way you know you have Americans you have British and they just keep playing into each other and it's just and it's just a game except it's a game where some people get shot in the head uh or starve to death whatever it is um and so it's funny i mean i found it very like often laugh out loud funny but it's the laugh but you choke on your laughter when you realize i don't think the film is being disrespectful no i don't think so either to the people that that did die in the soviet union i don't think it's being disrespectful in fact i think by pointing out the sheer ridiculousness of this type of you know this type of politics uh, and this type of governmental rule um i think it's being more respectful um by saying these guys yes they were monsters but they were also absolute clowns mm. and i i just uh, great performances all around uh, simon russell was uh, simon russell beal um sounds right that sounds right to I me i think it's uh, those three names i'm not sure in the order yeah. but yeah uh <laughs> I don't feel like going through all the options, but, um, <laughs> and Steve Buscemi is, is, is great. I really I mean, enjoy it. Only Russell Beale could talk. <laughs> oh, and the show has to keep going after uh-huh. that, unfortunately. <laughs> but, uh, and I really enjoy Jason Isaacs and it's just a, just a great ensemble who really end, understand what this is and mm-hmm. committing without winking. And, uh, you know, and the fact that Michael Palin is in it, I think 
play really oh, right, the, yeah. the, just his presence helps because it kind of lets you know how you should be taking all of this, which is not merely in a Monty Python way, but also Brazil and a fish called Wanda, like a very specific type of British humor. Um, and uh, yeah, I just, uh, I just adore the film. All right. Number nine for me. Now, you know, I've gotten to a point, I've talked about this before that when it comes to, biopics my guard is already up mm-hmm. so many biopics are so superficial uh and yet of all directors ethan hawk made a movie right. called blaze that is both a traditional biopic in some ways but also a self-aware deconstruction of whether or not the impulses that lead us to make things like biopics are healthy oh <laughs> um uh, because the movie is about um, uh, Blaze uh, Blaze Foley, uh, who was a singer songwriter uh, who died in the in the nineteen eighties, and it has sort of three timelines. It has the Blaze's life timeline, but then it has two different framing devices. Mm-hmm. One is the last concert he played, um, uh, which is. It was in the middle of the afternoon at a bar uh, that had about a half dozen people in it. Mm -hmm. Um, And and then the other framing device is Towns Van Zandt and then um, uh, another one of Blaze's friends played by uh, uh, BP nominee Josh Hamilton. Not nominated for this, but uh, for something else. uh, Giving an interview about Blaze's life. And that one in particular, the way that we see... Even someone who knew or claimed to knew Blaze well, like Towns Van Zandt, mm-hmm. engage in myth-making, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. uh, is, is so, it's, it's so, it makes the movie so self-aware about what it's doing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and that it doesn't ignore the music part because it has that, that other framing device. So mm-hmm. you hear like, yeah, this guy could write songs uh, really well, but most of the movie is about his relationship with his wife and the next wife played by the great Elias Shawcat, mm-hmm. um, who is someone who wasn't really around for the parts in his life when he was gaining notoriety as a songwriter, someone who knew him before that and someone who Towns Van Zandt never met. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a, it's a really tragic love story of a movie. It's also very funny and it has a lot of respect for this era of sort of, uh, seventies and eighties, like sort of neo outlaw country type of, yeah. uh, I'm not sure what you call that sort of like Towns Van Zandt, uh, Gus Clark, um, Ray Wiley Hubbard type of, uh, era. But, um, uh, it's, uh, so it has a lot of respect for that. Um, music but it's more about the idea that let's not forget this guy made great music that had a lot of impact and some of his songs were recorded by willie nelson and stuff like that but uh it what's more important are the parts that you don't make biopics about which is his friendships and his family and the people who are out here telling you how great he was aren't necessarily the people he was closest to right um and so it's a it's a beautiful and bittersweet uh, movie, and um, also a uh, a movie about biopics in a way. Hmm. Anyway, sounds fascinating. Uh, okay. Elias Shawcat is 
great. Yeah. When you mentioned this, uh, you know, I don't like to necessarily think like, oh, I'm getting so old. I mean, I do think that, but not necessarily in reference to pop culture. Um, but like when you mentioned Aaliyah Shawkat playing his, what was that, wife or ex-wife or something? Wife and then ex-wife, okay. yeah. And I just thought like, she can't play someone's wife. She's too young. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Arrested Development know. was 16 years ago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, okay. So my number nine, right. Yep. Is Corey Finley's thoroughbreds, which is uh, a film that, you know, when we did our, our, uh, individual achievement, I talked about it a couple of times and it's just, it's a film I find hard to pin down. It's even, even why I like it. Uh, I tend to like movies that I can really get a, a handle on their themes and the themes usually appeal to me. And then the film, uh, has, uh, usually perfectly ex- executes the theme. Um, and I don't know if I would be able to tell you, I have some ideas, but I don't know if I'd be able to tell you with any degree of confidence what Thoroughbreds is really about. I know that I can tell you what the story is right, about, yeah. but um, aside from possibly the idea of just, you know, you, he- you hear rather tragically about people who will like hurt themselves uh, in order to like feel something, mm-hmm. you know, and you have these two characters, one of them, a genuine sociopath uh, and the other, not, but still acting like one. And both of them just seem maybe bored by life or just frustrated that they're not connecting with other people. And what I, so you have these and great performances by, by, uh, the lead actresses, Olivia cook and Anya Taylor joy. And what I like is that, um, you see the way they, you know, everything, the way they talk to each other is very mannered and very measured. Um, and you just wonder like, what kind of, you know, is this some kind of strange heightened world, which is why I love the character of Anton Yelchin, like a guy who is himself kind of scummy and, and is a criminal and you see him show up and you realize like, Oh no, he's just like a regular guy. Okay. So these characters do exist in our world, Mm -hmm. but due to probably their wealth, uh, they're able to remove themselves from it so much that it seems as though they exist on another, on a completely other plane. Um, and so the fact that they connect with each other while also keeping their distance, like they don't, they don't trust one another. They don't seem to trust life and they also seem entitled, but not necessarily in a bratty way, but they are entitled to something so much deeper than things. They feel entitled to, well, only themselves, I suppose, uh, to such an extent that to their will, to their will. Yeah. To such an extent that, Oh, this guy is bothering me. He should die. And it's one of the characters talking about her stepfather. Meanwhile, he's kind of a jerk, Yeah, but he's not abusive or, or anything like he's not even really that verbally abusive. In fact, he's actually, there comes a moment where, you know, he shouldn't be saying some of this stuff to a teenager, but he's very incisive and intelligent and well-spoken about and correct Oh yeah, uh, in his assessment of his stepdaughter. And so, uh, so obviously he needs to go. And maybe that's part of the reason is that 
she knows, oh, this guy can see right through me. Mm. And this idea of like, you can't let anybody get too close. The only person that you're allowed to be accountable to is yourself. And so I feel like it could be a commentary on wealth, but frankly, even it's one of those films that even though I don't myself have a, 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 a complete handle on what I think it's trying to say. It says it so well. And, and it's mm-hmm. so the film is such a, I was talking about this with, can you ever forgive me? It's that such this complete package, like everything plays into the larger world of the film that I just, uh, I found the film oddly haunting. Uh, speaking of haunting, uh, I talked about with Roma, my favorite single sequences of the year, the, the part where the stepfather wakes up, and there's someone out in the yard and we yeah. never see outside the house. We just see through the windows, the security lights going on yeah. and off as this person's skulks around or whatever they're doing in, in the yard, uh, is, is yeah, really haunting. Yeah. Um, really stuck with me. Okay. Let's move on to number eight and Tyler. I'm so glad that we wait to do these okay. and give ourselves this window to catch up on stuff because my number eight movie is a movie that I watched last night. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, and it is, uh, Alice Rohrwalker's Happy as Lazzaro. Okay. Which is an unwieldy title. Yeah. The Italian title is Lazzaro Felice, which is much more fun to oh, say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's, that, that's actually the on screen. So if you go by, what does it say on the screen? Mm-hmm. The movie is Lazzaro Felice. There's no title card that says Happy as Lazzaro. That's just a Netflix name or whatever. Okay. Um, it's available on Netflix. You should watch it. Uh, and this is a movie that I, I can only describe as a modern day fairy tale, uh, um, which is not, that's not a particularly insightful. It literally has elements of both Cinderella and Rip Van, Rip Van Winkle. Hmm. Um, it takes place on a, an, an, an Italian sharecropping estate among the poor sharecroppers. Uh, one of whom is this completely almost like beatific looking kind of like, cipher named Lazaro who just does whatever he's told and never has a complaint about anything ever. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and then the, the Marquise or whatever, the noble woman who runs these day comes to visit. And that's when you suddenly get this. So we've been thinking the whole time that it's like early 1900s or, Mm -hmm. you know, this is very similar to the tree of wooden clogs, which also takes place, uh, is an Italian movie that takes place on one of these, um, type of sharecropping farms. Um, but then once the Marquise and her family show up and you see how they're dressed and the stuff that they have, you're like, wait, what year is this? Mm -hmm. Um, and apparently the movie is, loosely inspired by a true story that happened in Italy of after sharecropping was outlawed, this one uh, family was just like, well, we don't have to tell our sharecroppers that it's against the law now. And they lived that way, lived as sharecroppers for years after it was, uh, after it was outlawed, essentially as slaves. Yeah. Um, uh, so apparently that really happened and that, and so that's, that's what happens here. But Lazzaro then sort of befriends the son of the mm-hmm. noble family. And then I, I don't want to give away what happens next, but remember I did mention Rip, Rip Van Winkle. So things, uh, uh, things change a little bit, but the movie, I think 
on the one hand, it recalls it's sort of like hard scrabble depiction of these people's uh, miserable, miserable lives yeah. feels very in keeping with Italian neorealism. Yeah. But I mentioned fairy tales, obviously, but uh, that's that's actually a trait that is pretty common to fairy tales is characters who are almost ridiculously at the very bottom social, yeah, rung, yeah. you know, like like your Cinderella's uh, and stuff like that. And so the the um the sheer depressing difficulty of these people's lives uh becomes a little more palatable i guess because it's framed in terms of a fairy tale but that doesn't make it any more emotionally or intellectually uh relevant or 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 um coherent i guess is the word i'm looking for uh and uh yeah this is a difficult movie to talk about the second half of because i don't want to give away uh how things how things change um but uh um the idea just the 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 approach and execution of making a modern day fairy fairy tale based in loosely based in real events but having magical realist uh tendencies but also having a lot to actually say about um, what has happened. I think uh, my understanding from what I've read is that it's a little, uh, um, there are some things that are particular to, uh, 20th century and early 21st century Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in general, the sort of, uh, the way that, um, post industrial age information age, you know, progressivism has, uh, done great things for a lot of people, but there are also people that it's left behind. Mm-hmm. You know, you you banish the thing that is oppressing people, but then right. you don't offer any alternative. Yeah. And uh, it, and so these people, like we were talking about with Sorry to Bother You, ostensibly have more freedom now, but they don't really because they don't have any options. Right. Uh, and it's a it's a very very beautiful, um, occasionally funny uh, movie that is also. A for uh, points for difficulty, just for setting out to make this thing mm-hmm. and making it so perfectly. Also, um, shot on a beautiful sixteen millimeter film. It looks it looks great. <laughs> All right, next up for me, number eight is Bing Lu's Minding the Gap. Go ahead. All right. Uh, yeah, I didn't mention. I should. I, well, I, I said I was going to try and cram more movies in. I, I, I didn't mention the the two movies that got left just outside of my mm-hmm. honorable mentions are Minding the Gap and John McEnroe in the Realm of Perfection. I'm not, I'm not talking about any documentaries today, so mm. those were my two favorite documentaries of the year. So I thought I'd mention them. But now we're going to talk about Minding the Gap. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's it's a film that actually surprised me because I had only heard about it in terms of it's a skateboarding movie, and I thought, well quote-unquote, just a skateboarding movie, doesn't get nominated for Best Documentary. Um, yeah, I'm so glad that you didn't have it sort of yeah. spoiled for you, as it were. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I had heard somebody mention that it also kind of explores masculinity. I was like, oh, all right. Uh-huh. But that's pretty vague, yeah. actually. Uh, a lot of movies do And that. what I like is that it does do that, but that's not all it's doing. That's almost a byproduct. Um, more than anything, it just wants to... It's hard to... It, it's kind of about everything. It really is just this this guy Bing Lu who had been recording things, uh, you know, for on video for years. Uh, escape, he's a skateboarder in uh, Rockford, um, mm-hmm. and as he got older, I think he started to question his own life, 
the lives of, of his friends. And he realized like, these are often very broken people with very broken lives. And he himself, you know, had a very uh, an abusive stepfather and, and skateboarding was his escape. And it seemed to be the escape for most of these uh, kids. And what I like is that he didn't, he chose not to allow that to be the primary narrative because where it's just like, Hey, this is this pure thing and it, and it helps people. That's part of it. But I think he also recognizes as he got older, that's like, yeah, maybe escape isn't what we should be looking for. Not completely. It's something that can be tremendously helpful when you are younger and helpless Mm -hmm. and have no real agency of your own. Uh, but we're older now we're in our twenties or whatever it is. And now I think it's time we've, we've spent enough time escaping. Yeah. So maybe now it's time to go back and see exactly what was going on with our lives. And in a way it's, it's very inspiring. Like you look at these other, uh, these other people and some of them seem fairly content to just keep going with their, with their lives to, in some cases, uh, perpetuating, um, the, you know, keeping the, the, the cycle going mm-hmm. of often violence and, and abuse. Um, but I, I, this is okay. Uh, boy, this is going to sound really, really pleased with myself. <laughs> um, not so much me, but like, thank God for artists that, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like that I do. there are people who, who look at the world and they see that there is a larger meaning or that there is something that can be combed out of experiences out of living a certain way, whatever it is. And even care, even I keep saying characters, sorry, but even people that acknowledge that the life that they lived maybe wasn't that great. Um, and that, and even if they rather healthily try to make changes or try to confront it, whatever it is, um, they'll just continue on with their life and there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm glad that there was somebody here in this case, uh, Bing Lu who saw potential in his own upbringing as something that could that could maybe comfort other people, uh, including the people that he's actually documenting. Um, and so, it's it's a very ambitious film while also not seeming ambitious. It certainly is ambitious as far as how much time he spent on it. And it does feel in a lot of ways like hoop dreams, mm-hmm. um, you know, as far as the, the scope of what he's doing. But it also seems incredibly intimate. And some would I could imagine somebody watching this be like, who cares? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they'd be like, they'd be like, yeah, I'm sorry for these kids, but we're just following three kids from Rockford. Yeah. Why, why are we doing this? Um, but of course, as you and I've said before, like the specific can be general mm-hmm. and I feel like this, spe- and that's why I think where the masculinity thing comes, um, comes in. Like, as you see a transition from one generation to the next, you actually get men who wonder like, okay, well, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a husband, a father, whatever it is. <clears throat> and, but what I like is that, even that theme is maybe too small. The film is exploring so many things and it clearly 
is just therapeutic as well as, uh, you know, not just for the director, but I think for the subjects and likely for a number of the viewers as well. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, one quick uh, um, trivial uh, question I had when I watched Mining the Gap. Two different characters from Rockford, Illinois, end up in Denver. I did. For, and I was yeah, like, yeah. you've got Chicago right there. Yeah. Or you've got St. Louis, you've got Kansas City, you've got Memphis, you've got Louisville, you've got yeah. Nashville, like Des Moines, like why? What is it? What is this Rockford to Denver pipeline? <laughs> it's, it seemed like a weird coincidence. Uh, Denver is a, I know because of my brother, Denver is a good skate city. Oh, okay. Um, okay. And, uh, so I think that might have attracted them, okay. but yeah. Oh, that did not go <laughs> unnoticed by me. I was like, what the hell? Oh, right. Okay. That now I remember. Right. But yeah, I, I sh- I'm sure it's that. All right. So moving on to number seven and, uh, it's fun doing these thinking about things in terms of years, uh, in, in which you end up seeing, I don't know, motifs mm-hmm. or whatever you talked about. Sorry to bother you. I talked about happy as lots of row. And with this next movie, there seems to be something that seems to be on the mind of a lot of people is what is it like day to day being on the lower rungs of capitalism? Right. And so my number seven, uh, is Andrew Brujowski's support the girls, mm. which, uh, Introducing it that way makes it sound like it's, again, like a neorealist type thing, right. which also Andrew Brzezowski coming from the quote-unquote mumblecore, mm-hmm. uh, which is a you know a, more of a 21st century type of neo, uh, neorealism, I guess. Um, you'd, be understa- uh, you'd be forgiven for, for seeing it that way. But no, this is a workplace ensemble comedy and a character mm-hmm. piece first, and I think that's the best way to approach it. I mean, people can... I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't use a judgment like that. Sometimes movies can be very straightforward and be great. But I think uh, a good way to approach larger social issues like that is to, like you said, be specific, be about characters, tell a story. Uh, And Regina Hall here plays the manager of a Hooters knockoff uh, called Double Whammies. And uh, it's one of those all-in-one-day movies. It starts with her training a bunch of potential uh she she's the manager and so the the head waitress is played by Haley lou richardson who's always great in mm-hmm. everything um and uh um she's training a bunch of new recruits uh including one played by dylan galula who uh is on unbreakable kimmy schmidt do you watch that that show uh, i watched the first season so she's jane krakowski's daughter oh okay yeah um uh and then you've got uh, another employee who's not working that day, uh, played by um, Shayna McHale, who's terrific in her acting debut. She's a rapper who goes by the name, pardon me, Jungle Pussy. Um, and uh, this is her acting debut, and she's terrific. And we find out that the reason she's not working that day is because Regina Hall is working that day, and the owner, James LeGro, has a very off-the-record and illegal policy of no two black women working on the same day uh, because he doesn't want the customers to think of this as a black establishment oh i see um and yeah that that comes up later in uh i talked about when we did an individual achievements episode i, I singled out james the girl even though he's uh, and what i mentioned is that he's close to in terms of he'd be close to being the under 15 minutes award, except he's right. present for a lot of the movie that he's not really yeah. active in, but he has one long sequence. That's him and Regina hall. He takes her to, uh, I can't remember where, uh, but off property. Then it's just them driving in a car, uh, in a truck. Um, 
and uh, I later read that unlike many movies where long car scenes take place this truck was not on a trailer James the Girl was actually driving a truck around Austin with a boat uh, on the trailer and doing this scene with Regina Hall uh, and a cameraman I guess uh, so all the more uh, credit to, yeah. to James the Girl uh, for doing that um, but uh, the way the way the movie sort of sort of like shoplifters a movie that looks at uh, de facto family workplace comedies usually we talk about them in terms of like sitcoms but mm-hmm. you know there's workplace uh, uh, movies too you know um, like uh, well, obviously the uh, Waiting the Dane Cook movie I never saw that <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Empire Records uh, and no. probably some good ones too like Support the Girls um, uh, they take on a sort of family, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, milieu, I guess. Um, and Regina Hall plays the, the matriarch. And so to, to see her as this warm, caring manager who also has to be hard. Sometimes mm-hmm. she has to fire people in this movie, but also someone who is oppressed by her boss who doesn't respect her for whatever you know for uh, on a number of of levels um while the whole idea of exploitation both of a lower income workforce and of the fact that this is a business that commodifies women's bodies is all in the background it never Mm -hmm. goes away but the movie is not a polemic about those sorts of things it's a very very funny and warm-hearted uh and i would say truly magical uh workplace ensemble comedy okay so next up for me, my number seven is the Coen Brothers, "The Ballad of Buster Scruggs." Okay, um, which I I assumed I would like it. I like most of their stuff, but you know, six short films, you just can't necessarily guarantee. Um, that it's going to hang together. Uh, and for a number of people, it doesn't. Uh, I, I know a lot of people who said that they like. They said, "I like the first two. I don't like the other four. Oh, that's weird. That order is weird. Because I feel like the one. Because I only recently finally mm-hmm. caught up with it, like less than a week, well, a week ago today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like the only one that I had heard almost nothing about was the second one. Uh, no one seems to be talking about that one. It was weird. Uh, I know a number of people who said that, like the funniest line in the film is in the second one, which is first time, yep. you know, which is admittedly very funny. Very funny. Um, yeah. uh, but that's the thing. Admittedly, the people that say that are people that are, in my opinion, a bit more inclined towards like the mainstream and oh, okay. Uh, not, not that the first film is necessarily mainstream, but it's just so damn fun can, that it's okay. Can I tell you what I think the funniest line in the movie is? Sure. It's in the final one. Okay. And it's after, is the actor's name Chelsea Ross? Damn right. He gives this ridiculously, yeah. Yeah. amazingly long monologue. Like, yeah. give him, give this guy awards for I, a, a I, I long, submitted, long I submitted him for the McGill. Uh, I think it might be too long. It's like 25 minutes, isn't it? That one? Yeah, I think. I don't think so. Okay. Well, um, he has this incredibly long monologue. The joke is how long he's going. Yeah. 
and then he finally stops and you think everyone's relieved and then Brendan Gleeson asks him another yeah. question I laughed out loud oh, yeah. at, at that <laughs> Brendan Gleeson like being like go on after yeah. everyone else is like oh finally well and just the way <laughs> Chelsea Ross plays it he, he ends like he's talking about his relationship with this Native American woman and goes and then she moved on Pause, and then Brendan Gleeson says, "Did you love her?" And he goes, "Oh, I don't know." <laughs> and he goes like, on another little thing. Yeah, God, it's funny. Yeah, it's it's great. Um, that guy's great. He is and, great. Uh, like, I've liked him in other stuff yeah. uh, too, but yeah, I, yeah, he's been in a number of other things. But it's always nice when, but he's always reliable. But it's rare for him to play a character that big. Um, I don't mean screen time. I mean as far as like the size of the character himself like oh, getting to do like this the number one thing that i associate him with is his very small part in bill and ted's excellent adventure oh okay he's the guy from the military school that uh okay Ted's yeah dad is gonna true. send him to so i i do think of him as being a big okay. character but that's because of that one <clears throat> small part. i think of him first from a simple plan where he's like the, okay. the local oh. sheriff and it's a oh. great performance yeah. but um anyway we've gotten off track yeah so a lot of people really said like, oh, I like this one and not this one. And while I understand that it's perfectly okay to approach a film however you want, um, I think it's best to view it as one thing, as one movie. Now, with uh, with one exception, uh, there are no characters from one story that are in you know each story or anything like well, that's, that. I mean, that's our interpretation. That's our interpretation, but it's others as well, and obviously we're correct. But the point is, um, <laughs> I certainly think there's, that, I mean... That for is, those who don't know yeah. what we're talking about, there's a character in the first one and a character in the sixth one who... Neither one is ever given a name, right. and they're played by two different actors at two different ages, yeah. but it is... Many people... Yeah. Assume they are supposed to be the same character right. at different points. They in the both life. have a mustache, French accent, and a French accent. And they like to play poker. Yeah, yeah. And they're played. Uh, I, I don't think this is an offensive thing to say. They're played by Jewish actors. Yes. Who? Yeah. And it's it. Saul Rubinek could be the the much older David Crummel. Yeah. Although but, now, I mean now because both of them are a little bit. I don't know. Uh, portly, I guess. Sure. But have you seen David Krumholtz now? Yeah. Yeah, he's crazy skinny He now. apparently had a thyroid thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. And, and they so, wrote it into the deuce because he lost oh, really? like a hundred something pounds in between seasons one and two of the deuce. Wow. And so they wrote in that his character has been like on a diet or whatever. Oh. <laughs> I feel like with that show, it's just like, yeah, he just got really into cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway. And so uh, looking at Ballad of Buster Scruggs as one large piece... Um, I think can be very helpful in, in appreciating it, especially that last one. And if you look at the, if you look at the, the way the film progresses, I think, yes, each, each individual story kind of has a different tone to it. But what, what's interesting is that, uh, as the stories would seem in some ways to get darker, there is also, an interesting progression of violence, which is to say it gets less. There's less violence as the film goes on. The first, you know, the first cheerful film, features quite a bit of violence. Yeah. And then, it, and then we get more and more as we go. And then the, but the, and, fifth, and the I, fifth one has the big, the, the, the Indian raid, true. which is pretty violent. It is violent, but I feel like it's, I think the violence is treated in, in a more mournful way as we go along. Oh yeah, that's and true. Yeah. and which is it's one of the reasons why I do think that 
Saul Rubinek is the I was thinking I'd say grown up. David Crumholtz is a grown up, but you yeah. know what I mean. I think he's the older because that last film or let's say that last story I think is so much about I mean it's obviously about mortality and heading towards you know closer being closer to the end than the beginning you know it's notable that in that in that uh, stagecoach it's all older people mm-hmm. um, some of whom are a little bit delusional some of them but they're all very philosophical and there's no actual violence in that uh, in that film but it seems to be about the not even necessarily the consequences of violence but it's it's more about death itself and Mm -hmm. and just as the as the films you know as the stories go on um the tone changes and becomes i mean if you look at the tone of one and six you know one is there's you know a character sings several songs and it's very bright and sunny and cheerful even in the midst of horrendous violence and then the last one someone does sing a song but it's much more it's two songs quiet the englishman sings at the very beginning oh that's right yes and then brendan gleason sings but they're much more mournful Uh and so i just feel like putting aside putting aside just the technical aspects of the film which i think are marvelous i think the film is beautifully shot by bernard dubbinell but um but i also just feel like you know the Coen brothers who definitely have an appreciation for old film genres um, I think I like it best when they're sort of deconstructing that genre and by by exploring uh, by having these six different stories it allows them to look at all these different types of, of westerns which is you know the quintessential American genre and then arriving at a place as they themselves are getting older, arriving at a place where, yeah, maybe the, maybe the, the violence that settled the West and the violence that continues in, in the United States, uh, you know, I would venture to say that the country is a little bit, uh, hawkish. Um, and I think that they're just, they're just finding, I think they just see that it, see it as sad. What started as fun and complete and light as a feather ultimately ends like, yeah, that you just go to this, yeah. you just go to this place. And, and I do love the, the, the book itself and that you, you're able to read a little bit of it. And I love the, the, the last bit where it says, I don't remember, I, I don't know if the character, the Frenchman is given a name, but it says he settled in for a long quiet. Yeah. And it's like, Oh boy, the long quiet <laughs> is, a, is a great way to describe death. Um, uh, the other, another thing I noticed that, yeah, uh, from, the idea of this it's six separate things, but you see, especially in the last three in the second half, um, there seems to be a, a motif of the idea that being too certain about things is folly. Absolutely. Two times that someone thinks another person is dead, walks over to the body and then ends up getting killed because Absolutely. the person that happens twice. Um, the gal who got rattled, the character herself is all about someone who is yeah. uh, not certain until she, makes a very strong decision at the end uh that doesn't go well uh for her and also the the three 
uh, not the Englishman and the Irishman, but the three passengers in the stagecoach mm-hmm. all have very, very certain worldviews that yeah. they, uh, you've got Saul Rubinek, Tyne Daly, um, and, and Chelsea Ross and Chelsea Ross says, what I, I think he might be the funniest character in the movie. Cause he it's also has my great. other favorite line, which yeah. is no people are like ferrets. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the fact that these, that the, the three all that they're, Viewpoints. It's not like it's a it's a stagecoach full of Christians. You know, mm-hmm. they all have very different viewpoints, but they're all on the same stagecoach. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, and I and I like that. I guess this is what I was talking about with the violence. Is that? I mean, obviously, in the in the second to last one, there's there's the bit with the Indians. But as far as if you'll pardon me, uh, the main characters, mm-hmm. like the way violence affects them. I mean, yes, obviously it's, uh, there, an attack is coming and all that, but the character's reluctance to actually do this, like you get the impression that the main, the, the what's the name? Granger or something. I don't remember that the larger, the, the older gentleman in the, in the second to last film that he, uh, he's Mr. A, Arthur, Mr. Arthur, but yeah. I, the, I, the actor's name is Granger or something, okay. but, um, you know, he seems like actually a pretty peaceful guy who really does not want to do this right. as opposed to the first film and probably even the second film a little bit. And one could say the third where people definitely see violence as something that will fix their problems. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. With him, it's well, violent, a violent problem is coming towards me. So I guess I'll do this. But if I had my druthers, I would just not at mm-hmm. all. And so I just, I feel like it's a, a, a fascinating yeah. film and in, uh, incredibly rewatchable. Oh yeah. I look forward to that. Oh, I don't know. The, the Liam Neeson one, I don't know. It might be tough. It's a tough rewatch. It is. And that's, that seems like a pretty personal <laughs> statement, that film, right? Um, I mean, if you, Oh, I don't know if you think in terms of like, okay, we've got this, this artistic act and it's bringing people in. Uh, it doesn't seem to be bringing people in anymore. Hey, we found this other artistic oh, okay. act. It's a lot dumber. Uh, and, uh, we're going to go with that. Yeah. Um, and also, well, I don't want to give spoilers away. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway. All right. Moving on to number six. My number six is Barry Jenkins. If Beale street could talk. Okay. Okay. We're not talking about it later. No, um, I, did not like it as much as I wanted to. Oh, that's, uh, and, and I had the experience that I had, I think hoped to have with moonlight, um, in the, that I think, you know, you've talked about, uh, you talked about the success of the big short, making Adam McKay more confident to negative ends. Yeah. I feel like the same thing happened with Barry Jenkins, that this mm. is an even more confident film than Moonlight, which is not exactly a half measures film to begin <laughs> right, with. Right. But, uh, uh, to go back to what I was saying about happy is Lazaro, um, degree of difficulty here in adapting James Baldwin, doing a period piece, doing something that is at times much like James Baldwin's writing could be highly theatrical and yet yeah. also making it as, as immediate and, 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 and relatable to the present day or to our ongoing conversations. Uh, the d- degree of difficulty is very high and I didn't, you might disagree here. I didn't see a single seam or a single crack in the movie at all. I, I felt like he pulled everything off perfectly, um, culminating in, as long as we're talking about individual moments from films, probably my favorite final shot of any movie in 2018, uh, which is at the, the visiting right. yeah, um, uh, because of the way that 
in a movie that had been so dialogue heavy and, and voiceover heavy. Right. That final shot, they're talking, but that's not important. Everything you need to know about where they are at the end is there in their physicality, in the blocking, and also in the fact that they're off center and you can see other people doing other shit behind them. Yeah. And, and everything you need to know about, about this, this world as Barry Jenkins and as James Baldwin see it is there in that final shot, uh, without dialogue, even though the movie has, um, uh, depended on so much talking mm-hmm. up until then, which is not a which is not a complaint. It's a, but it is a very dialogue heavy yeah. uh, movie, and of course I couldn't um, get through talking about it feels she could talk without mentioning Regina King, who uh, I think um, is when it comes to Oscars this year seems to be one of the uh, a handful of sure things, yeah, and. Uh, one you won't find me having any complaints about. Uh, I think it's, I've always liked, always liked Regina King, at least going back to Jerry Maguire, um, where she played, uh, community juniors mm-hmm. wife. Um, and, and, uh, uh, I feel like this is the role that maybe, uh, I've been, we've been waiting. Those of us who have been Regina King acolytes mm-hmm. for 20 years or so, uh, have been waiting for this, for this, uh, sort of breakthrough, um, in terms of prestige to, to happen. What, what are your, what are your thoughts on the movie? Oh, uh, why? Let's be, let's be positive. I don't I, you know. I wouldn't have hesitated to tell you. <laughs> I know. The, the opposite. I know. Um, um, no, it's, uh, no, it's very good. Of course. Yeah. Um, I love the music and I think the acting is, is great all around. Um, I do have sh- some issues with the voiceover, and I think the general structure of the film. Now, I under- and I don't know if the voiceover was taken specifically from. I don't the know book. that either. Yeah. Part of me assumes that it was, and it's like, well, when you've what little James Baldwin I've read, which you know I feel bad about, but like he's it's amazing. Like there, it's it's poetry and prose at the same time. It's it's fascinating, <laughs> and so. Um, so if you have access to that, why not incorporate it? But I felt like. <clears throat> I felt like it gave the the proceedings. It, it distanced me from from them. I felt like I was, and even though the the it's not third person narration, the character herself is narrating, but just the the way that she is narrating doesn't seem to fit the way she actually speaks, um, which makes which is which distanced me from from everything. But it's not supposed to be in the moment. It's not like here's no, it can thing. be in retrospect. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's what it, what it is. Yeah. Because I, I I think, and this this is not a complaint. Other movies have done this. The main character is the least dynamic in many ways character in the movie. You know, you've got Fani and, uh, you've got her, both of her parents Mm -hmm. and you've got, uh, um, Fani's mom played by Anjanu Ellis in, yeah. in one brilliant scene. You've got yeah. Brian Terry, Terry Henry, you've got yeah. Dave Franco, you've got all these other people who come in, yeah. uh, and even, um, yeah, Ed screen as the screen screen as the yeah. police officer. I never know how to say his name. Um, so I definitely took it as, this is in retrospect and this is where we're seeing her character because we're not seeing her fully formed yet on the screen as a person. Yeah. I definitely, which is not a complaint against Kiki, Kiki Lane's performance. She's yeah, very no, no, good. No. Yeah. yeah. A great performance. Um, yeah, just, but for some reason, I don't know. I, I always have kind of an issue with narration in general. Um, and, and again, it's beautifully written and that's not, it's not like that's my only issue with the film. Again, like, uh, I'm fine with the nonlinear structure, but for some reason, just the way it jumped around and I was, and I, and I, at first I had a problem with not seeing Fawny's experience. 
mm-hmm. you know, like inside the prison or anything like that. Um, at first I had a problem with that, but as time went on, I was like, no, I kind of like that. I like, because the nature of prison is, is that you're removed. Um, yeah, yeah, that's and, true. And we see so much of his life and what's special about yeah. him and his life outside yeah. of prison that we, we feel the loss. Yeah. Um, and we also, as we talked about on the BP's ceremony, uh, Patreon slash premium episode. Yeah. Um, we kind of understand everything we need to understand about his life in prison from Brian Tyree Henry's monologue. Right. And then you just see him show up and like, Oh, he's got bruises now. Like, okay, I think we can piece it together. And right. also, you know, maybe we don't want to, but, um, yeah, it's just, uh, I'll say this, like a moonlight was in my, uh, honorable mentions that year. And if I had to remake that list, it would probably crack my top 10. I think, oh. I think Beale street is a film that will probably stay with me. Uh, there are a lot of individual scenes that stayed with me. Um, and while I do feel like one of the, great things about that music is that it's unifying. So when you have something that's nonlinear and then you have like sort of these little vignettes, mm-hmm. uh, you need a score that can bring everything together and make it feel like all, all yeah. of, all of a piece. And, um, and I think it does. That's the thing is I may, maybe that's, that's it for me is that like the individual elements are all wonderful, but for some reason it never quite added up to like a complete whole for me. Not for lack of trying by Nicholas Patel though. I think I do love that music. Uh, yeah. And then also I mentioned Regina King, I mentioned Andrew Ellis, I mentioned Brian Taylor Henry and Dave Franco. I didn't mention by name Coleman Domingo, who I think is terrific. He's great. Her, and I can't remember her. She's the main character. I can't remember her character's name. Yeah. Because Kiki Lane is the actress, her dad, and he has a number of great scenes. But the the bar scene between her dad and Fonny's yeah. dad, Michael Beach, uh, Michael Beach uh, from Aquaman, um, <laughs> he's in a lot of stuff. But he's and also one false move. His other twenty eighteen role yeah. is Aquaman. He's good uh, in Aquaman. Anyway, um, uh, that scene is is his uh, standout. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. All right, number six for Tyler. Number. <laughs> Feel like, feel like I'm a child. Now. <laughs> and what's number six for Tyler? And okay. what are we talking about next? <laughs> it is uh, shoot. I now have forgotten the director's name. Hang on. Uh, okay. Tim Wardle's Three Identical Strangers. Um, man, I I I really did not expect this film to be what it was as I'm sure nobody did because I mean, you, you, you know that it's going to not end great when you realize that two out of the three guys are being interviewed mm-hmm. and you're yep. like, okay, something's, and it could just be that one of them, you know, just had a heart attack or something like that, but it's bigger than that. Yeah. Um, and I do like that the film, I think the, the structure of it is what really worked for me, which is, it puts you in the same emotional state as the twin, uh, the, the, the triplets triplets, uh, in the moment, which is excitement, novelty, fame, realization, one realization leading to another, to another. And then throughout it all, like, okay, how is this impacting us? What does this mean for us? We're not that special, I guess, cause there's a much larger thing going on. And I like that it's, that there's not, there is no real sense of resolution. There is only sadness and tragedy. Um, and that in the midst of all of this, there is, you know, you have these three guys who are very charming and, and very, uh, fun to watch. And they clearly 
love this this uh, new relationship that they have, uh, and you see that level of humanity contrasted with the noted inhumanity that needed to happen mm. for, and I don't want to spoil anything. It's yeah. weird to be talking about a real life event with spoilers, but good Lord, you're not going to see it coming when you watch the movie. Uh, some of the stuff that is revealed, but it, it required yeah. a lot of people to put their own conscience aside in order to do this thing. Yeah. And I just really, I, I like the, yeah, I really appreciate that structure and that it would have been it would have been so easy to have this be like, can you believe this? You know, yeah. and there's an element that there because how could there not be? But I like that they continue to touch on the real people that this affected and it didn't treat the twins. Uh, sorry, the triplets, triplets themselves. It doesn't treat them as like commodities. Like it understands that they also have emotions and they are also reacting to all of this. Well, yeah. I mean, one thing you said about the, uh, uh how you, your opinion of events changes along with theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie is also presents both sides of the nature nurture debate. Yeah. Along with how they saw it when they first, reunite everything is about like oh my god it's crazy how many things we have in common right and they're really focused on like it you know oh they smoke the same brand of cigarette yeah yeah that sort of thing and then as it goes on uh you more and more realize how their different upbringings have made them different yeah 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 it's it's a it's a fascinating story and i think it would have been very easy to make it a little bit too simple okay um tonally and it and it doesn't um, don't get too comfortable because I, I get a f- the feeling you're going to be talking again in a second. Because my number five of 2018 is Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind. Mine too. Oh, perfect. Look at that. I thought maybe it was going to be higher on your list. We at birthday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, we smoke the same brand of, <laughs> of cigarettes as well. Uh, so, um, yeah, the, uh, I, I, I expected to like the movie, but I, uh, I think I couldn't have prepared myself for how much it's not just uh, an artifact yeah that it is a fully alive and vibrant movie um that is like all great art as finds ways to be relevant to 2018 or 2019 is it now maybe Mm -hmm. uh despite having been made in the early 1970s yeah as it Uh, turns out hollywood doesn't change that much (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah that's that's true um but also it's a uh, surprising how much it fits into. Okay, here I mean another another thing that's come up a lot in 2018, but actually has come up a lot in American movies over the last 40 years or so is masculinity. You yeah. talked about it earlier, um, and yeah, the the way that the movie sort of uh, uh, casts a sidelong glan- glance at Jake Hannaford's masculinity that yeah. he's in uh, an Ernest Hemingway type, but the movie almost doesn't even treat it as a particularly large reveal that that is probably a compensation for something. Yeah. It almost takes it for granted. Like yeah. obviously guys, uh, who, who, who strut around like this drinking hard and, yeah. uh, and talking, you know, uh, chatting up young women and, uh, talk, you know, talking about, you know, hunting and, and the, all these yeah. manual things. There's probably something else, uh, yeah. that they're, that they're covering up for. Or, it isn't like it could actually the two things could exist side by side like it is possible to I don't think that's necessarily what the film is is saying but okay. the idea that that you 
could be all these things and that doesn't necessarily cancel out like right. certain sensitivities or, or, you know, sexual preference or anything like that. Um, and that's the thing is that, yeah, I love the way you phrase it, that it's not an artifact. And for, for Wells fans for years, like this was treated like that. Like, mm-hmm. Oh, we're, we're searching for this Holy grail. And once we dig it up, we'll be like, wow, look at that. Well, yeah. <laughs> on to the next thing. We'll you know. put it in its place in the. Yeah. It belongs in a museum. Yeah. And a museum. I'm being Indiana Jones here. Yeah, uh, I got it. Uh, and as we learned from Toy Story 2, a museum is all well and good, but you don't. You can't interact with any of those things. Uh-huh. Um, and this is a film that challenges you to interact with it. It's a film that. Because I do feel like there's there's this feeling that when you think about the past, this is a, a, a line that I've that I've quoted. It's not the most complex line, but I love the phrase of it uh, in the comedians and comedians and cars getting coffee episode with uh, Joel Hodgson. Um, he and, and Jerry are sitting in a diner and oh, right. yeah, and and Jerry says, like, it's another 50s diner. Why? Why are we always looking back? Like, what are we? Why are we so obsessed with the past? And then Joel Hodgson says, like, because when you look at the past, you know what you're going to say. Like, we all know, especially and in film circles, like we know Orson Welles. Uh-huh. We know what we're going to say. And this would just be another opportunity to say it. Oh, shit, it isn't like it still has his cadence and it still has his themes. But a, it's in color. But and and also just it's so very it's mostly in color, mostly in color. Pardon yeah. me. Uh, it's it's so very it has a modern sensibility and a postmodern sensibility it it acts as something while also parodying that thing yeah the movie's surprisingly funny yeah it's yeah. it is uh it is i i forget if you said vibrant or vital but both of I them were vibrant but yeah yeah there's a vitality to the to the film and it just it's it is not a relic it is a an active, exciting, sad, funny work of art. And I am, I am bummed that it did not get the release at the time. Cause I'm curious to know how we would have thought about it in his larger, you know, filmography. Um, yeah. And also how much we would have thought about, like thought about John Houston as an actor. Yeah. Uh, I mean, actually, I, I don't know. Bogdanovich is an actor. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I, I feel like I think of John Houston as a director first who acted. If I'm being honest, I first think of him as Noah Cross, but okay. that's just because he's so forceful. Right. But yes, I obviously, you know, I love Maltese Falcon, Treasure of the Sierra Madre and various other movies. And later stuff. I mean, he, at the same time he was starring in this movie, he was yeah. directing fat city, which was yeah. 1972, I think. Right. Yeah. Um, which is again, a movie from a guy who made something like the Maltese Falcon to make yeah. a movie that feels as vital to 1972 as yeah. much as, as, as current as up. Uh, everything's up to date in fat city. Yeah. Uh, and did you see pre- like Oklahoma reference? Oh, all right. Yeah. Uh, sorry. I'm not as up on my musical theater <laughs> that I hate, uh, as you are. Um, but I will say this, this was a real fine clam bake. <laughs> uh, I know that's not from Oklahoma. No, but, that's curious, though, um, right? Yeah. Yeah. But did you see Pritzi's Honor? Uh, no, I never saw that. It's a, it's 1985. Oh. And while it's, it deals with, you know, crime and like hitmen and the mob and all that sort of thing, it, it definitely has a modern sensibility. Like he really, 
Houston is kind of an unsung director. I feel like we don't talk about him enough as a director who also could sort of adapt at the times while still making his movies. But anyway, number four for me, that was great. We knocked one out. Uh, I know at the same great. time that way. Uh, so we won't have a repeat of last year. Where we have the same number one. Um, but this is probably the last time we're going to line up. Indeed. Yeah, almost certainly. Uh, number four for me is Josephine Decker's Madeline's Madeline. Okay. Uh, did you get a chance to catch up with it? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm going to say it from now um, on. Uh, yeah, you know I mean, Madeline's I d- Madeline is going to be my Mad Max uh, uh, okay. Fury Road. I'm never going to see it. What do you think of that? It's fine. Um, I, I think I, I think you'd like you're not it. doing that against anybody. Um, I know. Yes. Uh, for more. On that, subscribe to the Patreon. Listen to our first mailbag. We talked uh, more in depth about my not having seen Fury Road than we have talked about on the yeah. on the main podcast. Anyway, um, so Madeline's Man, I think you'd like because uh, you uh, it's a movie about a low, like small town, not small town. It's New York City, small time community theater or in this case experimental theater yeah. um actors um uh, helena howard plays madeline who uh is it's her summer break she's a high schooler and she has uh fell fallen in with uh or fallen in love i guess with this experimental theater troupe run by uh molly parker um and uh, that's how she spends her free time uh, in this summer. We also come to understand that Helena Howard's the Madeline has uh, been perhaps institutionalized or had some sort of mental health issues in mm-hmm. the past. Um, and then her home life uh, with her younger brother and her uh, single mother, played by Miranda July, is um, uh, <laughs> we're making a good time. Is, is uh, uh, a, a little bit troubled and. Um, the movie is, we talked about, uh, um, which movie we talked about with three identical strangers or, or with uh, battle of Buster shrugs. We had this idea of a movie sort of transforming mm-hmm. over time. And so we start to see like, she's got this tough home life. She's had these problems in the past. This, this theater troupe is a, is a, is an oasis for her. This is a place where she can be herself. She can act out that, you know, that art is allowing her to act out things that she couldn't say, Mm -hmm. uh, or even elucidate in any other way, uh, with her family. Uh, but as things go on, we kind of realize that, uh, nothing is as pure as all that. And that Molly Parker's character is, despite being a competing mother figure to her is also, uh, almost un almost irresponsibly, in fact, I would say irresponsibly willing to exploit Helena Howard's mental health and hmm. difficult home life for the art. And so we get, a, you know, you come to a sort of dividing line where it's like, at what point is art therapy for her? And what point is she being exploited? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a fascinating question for anyone who regularly consumes art, especially, you know, personal slash uh, avant-garde or whatever, um, type of art to, uh, to consider. Um, at the heart of it, you've got three of the best performances of the year. Helena Howard, who's a newcomer is, is terrific. Molly Parker, um, it definitely gets everything about, uh, you know, big city, uh, bougie liberal artist <laughs> type, right. Without being a caricature at right, all. Right. And then, um, 
Miranda July. I mean, I've been making this joke for over a year now since I saw it at Sundance, but um, to cast Miranda July as the most down to earth character in yeah. a movie is essentially stunt casting. Yeah. Uh, and it's a wonderful performance. She was nominated for a BP I voted for. Uh, she may have won for all you know. That's true. Uh, at this point. Um, and uh, yeah, Madeline's Madeline has been, it, it was up until, really recently my number one of the movie number one year uh number one movie of 2018 for about 11 months in a row because mm-hmm. i saw it so long ago so uh it's power and it's staying power and not to be underestimated so uh you can make it your fury road if you want but i do think you'd like it a lot yeah i know uh yeah that thing you were saying about miranda july reminds me of uh uh your next where Joe Swanberg plays a guy who's talking about how he thinks like commercials are the height of the medium. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, okay. So next up for me, my number four is Bradley Cooper's a star is born. Oh, right. I forgot we didn't talk about this. Indeed. Uh, yeah, I, it's just a very straightforward, big Hollywood movie that is not a standard like spectacle. Um, but it's, it's, nicely mainstream uh i don't mean to say that as though mainstream is inherently good but it's like it's everything that i want mainstream to be absolutely do you know what yes. i mean and, and uh, but also it's it's interesting you say that because uh it's also a signifier of how experimental avant-garde types of making movies worm their way into the mainstream because yeah. if you showed a star is born to you know uh, Frederick March <laughs> and Jenna Gaynor yeah. and said this is a mainstream version of this same movie that you just made it would look it would yeah. be incomprehensible to them with yeah. the, the handheld camera and the close ups on guitar strings and mm-hmm. and the and the competing sort of neon colors and stuff it would have looked uh, kaleidoscopic to them and yet now it feels yeah it, it feels mainstream but at the, you know at the height of what mainstream can be yeah it's it's not necessarily yeah it would have, it would feel experimental to, to others but this is a it's a type of filmmaking that we've grown accustomed to. And it's just all of these things working together to tell, I think a very effective and yes, tragic love story where I genuinely, this is a thing that, that gets me. I think maybe I'm suspicious of love, uh, but it's more just when you see characters that are either falling in love or they're attracted to one another, uh, or they are genuinely in love there's there's an almost there's a shorthand in the in the dialogue that is expressed through their look there's that that you know intangible thing called chemistry uh and i feel like i'm quoting something when i say that but now i can't remember what what it is but anyway um and bradley cooper and lady gaga like really have that just the the ease with which they talk to one another uh, and I don't remember how much of the film is improvised. Some of it is, but okay. obviously there's still, there's certainly a structure, but then I think certain things are scripted as well. And the fact that it all feels so natural and as they are falling in love, you know, you have a big music star falling in love with a nobody. I'm sorry to put it that way, but like as far as fame goes, right. a nobody. And that is already, a stretch you know that we tend to fall in love we tend to fall in love with people in our own circles and in our own world and she's most certainly is not uh except in her own way as she's a performer um but i think that's something that bradley cooper is trying to say i think what i think bradley cooper is 
the reason he wanted to make a Star Wars movie is he had something to say about the nature of fame as it relates to art. The idea of oh, becoming yeah. famous for being an artist yeah. almost puts your two worlds at odds with one another. Yeah. And so I think he's he's saying that uh, he that that Jackson Maine does have more in common with Ali right. uh, because they're both songwriters than he would with yeah. someone else who is at his level of fame. Yeah, she reminds like him. <laughs> he plays himself in the movie. Oh, that's right. I, forgot. I was trying to think of like, someone <laughs> yeah. who played themselves. Um, yeah, she clearly reminds him of something, not that he forgot, but something that he regularly has to kind of put to the side, um, which is like that it has to be, that it's about the artistry first and it's about expression first. Um, which is why like when she starts to come up and the stuff she's doing is something that he knows she probably doesn't like this and I don't like it. And this is kind of far from where she started, but the manager is trying to push her in this very specific direction. And I think, I think Bradley Cooper like oversteps his bounds, uh, in, in judging her. But I think Bradley Cooper, you mean Jackson Maine does. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Bradley Cooper, I think doesn't, I think that's one of the, that's one of the complaints of the movie is that it is uh, people who have problems with it. Feel like the movie is on the same page as Jackson Maine. And I, I didn't feel that way when I watched it. I think it's, I think the film is on board with the point he is making because he knows her. Uh, but the way in which he's doing it is uh, kind of condescending and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And admittedly, he's been in the business longer, and so he can speak from experience, but at the same time, she is his wife and they are equals and that sort of thing. And so it, there's so much more complexity in the relationship than one would expect. And so, and that's what I mean is that, like, I absolutely. Despite the despite the the fact of how of their relationship being, uh, I would say unlikely. I absolutely believe that they love each other, uh, and I'm rooting for their for their story. And I understand what each character, the pluses and minuses that they bring to this relationship, and the way those feed into each other. Uh, it is just a a, a wonderful. It's just a wonderful movie for grownups. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean yeah, like when I say that? It's just, and and that's that is itself refreshing. And the rest of the cast is marvelous as well. Sam Elliott turns into a great performance, but but yeah, it's it it is as it should be. Very much about these two, and it's a it, they are co leads. I don't think either one is is a bigger is a bigger role than the other, like as it should be with a romance, like it is about them. And I really just love the film. Uh, and oh yeah, the last thing I'll say about, uh, the movie, cause I love a good love story and I do believe they, uh, that, that, the, I believe the characters love each other. And I think another, I don't know if it's a complaint, but I've seen people be sort of cheeky about like, well, Jack's main sure has a good memory to remember this song that she, made up one, a, a couple verses of once and by the next day has a, right. written an entire song and arrangement and everything. And then knows, uh, you know, but I think that's actually part of the, there's a little, a little bit of magic to every good, uh, right. Hollywood love, uh, love story movie. The only thing that I'm a little skeptical about is that they both knew to go. Sha la 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 when they sing along. Uh, that seems like a very specific lady yeah. Gaga type choice. Like uh, one, she should do it 
for two seconds and he's like, okay, I see oh, what we're doing. Yeah. yeah, but no, they both go to, yeah. Uh, all right, great. Number three for me is a movie that I've only very recently learned that you haven't seen yet. Uh, and that's Deborah Granick's leave no trace. Okay. Um, and, uh, I, I think, um, I'm trying to think what to, what to compare this to. Um, in the same way as happy as Lataro, um, has elements of neorealism and also magical elements. Leave no trace doesn't have magical elements, but it has a lot of elements of neorealism that I think that's, that's one way you can look at it is, uh, the Deborah Granick's style being sort of very, uh, immediate handheld, um, not, not polished, not theatrical. You could see it as a kind of realism. And there certainly is that. Uh, but I think that would be ignoring, um, which I maybe even did on my first thought, didn't even really think about how much of the movie works as allegory and metaphor, how many Mm -hmm. times the different animals that show up represent different, different things. Um, or that, uh, as I talked about on the previous episode, uh, the idea that, uh, Ben Foster's character gets a job at a Christmas tree farm when everything about how most Americans think of Christmas trees is against how he thinks of nature and everything that most Americans think about Christmas itself is against any of his experience of family. Um, uh, and yet he is, a very caring and loving dad in the only way he knows how to be. Uh, and so the metaphors of the different animals we see, um, uh, specifically the, the bees, uh, that come up later on, but also the rabbits and, uh, dogs and all the, there's a lot of animals in leave no trace that this is something that didn't even really initially occur to me until I was thinking about the movie more, um, are all, are, are all sort of guiding us along the story. um, to to the uh thomas and mckenzie uh her character whose name is tom um the realization she comes to and the decision that she makes uh by the end we've seen because her performance is so great uh we've seen it come to fruition but i don't think uh i initially was thinking was realizing upon watching it how many clues as to where she was going we were getting from the various uh metaphors um, most of them animal in nature uh, in, in the movie, but it's, t- it's two uh, amazing performances uh, at, at the center of it. Um, and uh, uh, a bunch of, uh, a, a bunch of smaller performances. You've got Dale Dickey, of course, who was in Deborah Granick's uh, mm-hmm. winner's bone. You've got um, uh, Jeff Kober or Cooper, Jeff Kober. Mm-hmm. Um, He's a really good character actor. I know him more from TV than than movies, uh, but he plays the guy who hires the guy who runs the Christmas tree uh, farm. Um, uh, yeah, Jeff Kober. He was in Sully. Uh, that's him. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. He's got a very I, distinctive face. That's funny. I was. I just Jen and I were watching uh, old episodes of New Girl, and he was in an episode we watched oh, okay. last night. Oh okay. Uh, he was once behind me in line at the Arclight Culver City. How's he doing? Um, I don't know. He just, like he's. I think he's he he plays a very sweet guy in mm-hmm. Leave No Trace, um, but uh, he also has a very imposing physical presence. Yes, very much. And so. so I remember 
the line at the at the concession stand at the Arclight Culver City was moving very slowly, and I was like, "Not only am I getting stressed out by how slow it is, I'm, Jeff Cober might kill me." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so let's move on. What is what is your number three? My number three is Drew Goddard's Bad Times at the El Royale. That's one I didn't see. <clears throat> yeah, a lot of people didn't see it. Uh, and I know that some people really don't like it. Um, it could be seen as self-indulgence, two hours and 20 minutes. Um, and I went into it expecting one thing. I was expecting it to be just kind of this almost Tarantino-esque uh, romp, uh, violent romp, obviously. But uh but it's so much more than that while still absolutely being that. I mean, each character is a type um, and it would, and, and the, and the actors play them as that type, but then the film goes on and, you know, you realize that there's that old, old idea of like, nothing is what it seems. And like, these people aren't what they seem. It's like, that's true, but not in the way that that line is usually meant. What's true is that there's more going on inside them than what it would seem and that their types uh, are probably in some cases they're kind of put on. That's a big Hmm. theme. Um, But in some cases they're not. But uh, but there's still there's still more to them. Um, And. I already talked during the individual achievement. Like I think the art direction, the photography is really beautiful and really puts you into this place and you feel it's very, it's very stagey. Uh, you do sort of at times feel like you're inside a, a play, but, uh, it's the direction is so self-assured, just like uh, just lingering on the characters as they say their lines and reveal these things about themselves, uh, or not. And what I like is that in the midst of this, you, you know that bad things are happening. And in fact, a character gets killed very early, but it's kind of a misunderstanding and you're not really sure where the film is going thematically. You don't really know where it's going narratively. And then Chris Hemsworth shows up and he is also playing a type. It is, I think, I think it's his best performance mm. um, because he plays a, a cult leader and you know, uh, cult leaders probably have to be pretty charismatic and obviously, you know, he's, he's good looking, but also just the, the way he carries himself where he's very like loose and go with the flow, but says these things that sound so deep and they are in a way, but as he, he's essentially getting his followers to like reject power structures and they're so committed to him that they fail to realize that mm-hmm. he is simply replacing their power structures mm-hmm. with himself. And so he comes in and the tension is ratcheted up. And then the themes really come into play, which is the idea of what do we put our faith in? And when I say faith, I could, it does mean religious faith. Drew Goddard has shown himself through daredevil and various other things to be very interested in faith in general, Catholicism specifically, um, and just people so desperately needing to connect with one another, but also maybe connecting with this other thing first, something that gives them direction so that they can either 
so they have a better idea of how to approach other people or this idea of like, okay, now the two of us have something that we can commit to and we can walk together in this thing. And so over the course of the film, you see, you know, you see false prophets, you see real faith, you see, uh, fake faith, um, all of this stuff. Um, you know, and, and that kind of explains this sort of theatrical sheen, the idea of things, seeming a certain way, but you need to be careful what you actually believe. Because if you're not careful, you could wind your wind up following a, a very evil thing. And uh, it's just a, it's a tremendously fun movie, but it's so much okay. deeper than I expected. Um, you reminded me real quick, the idea of characters starting out as caricatures and becoming more real. Mm-hmm. Did you ever see Don John, the movie that Joseph Gordon-Levitt no, directed? No, I didn't. I, it, I heard it was pretty good. Yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, deserves to be deserves to be talked talked about a little more but definitely does that like mm-hmm. Tony Danza's character is, is his dad very much starts yeah. out as well like Viggo Mortensen in Green Book very like hey yeah. oh pasta gravy that sort of thing <laughs> um, and then becomes more of that, but they all follow that trajectory alright uh, number two home stretch here alright number two for me uh, is a movie I know you've seen because I told you not to talk about it earlier it's Bo Burnham's 8th grade alright um, and uh, this movie put me very much in mind of uh, one of my favorite works of art from the year 2017. Uh, not a film, but mm-hmm. a graphic novel called Spinning by Tilly right. Walden. Yeah. Um, both are about uh, girls of about the same age and both take this approach of being much like someone who is that age is so self-conscious mm-hmm. and so inside their own head that the movie is always following the following that track and being right with her in every moment. And so you're only as a viewer, it's not condescending in any way to her or it's not really even distance to where like, I'm a, you know, I'm understanding as a viewer that when she's in the backseat of the car with that high school boy, like I'm like, this is bad, but I also am never at a part where I'm like, run, get out of the car because yeah. I'm so inside her head. Yeah. And so I had the same experience with eighth grade that I had with spinning, which is this, the second it was over, I suddenly felt this rush of yeah. emotions that I didn't really realize I'd been holding off on. Um, because I hadn't had the distance from the main character. It's a, it's such a gentle, no. sympathetic movie, uh, that is so devoid of condescension. It's a very difficult thing for an adult to make a movie about a child without yeah. at least a little condescension. It's so rare that you see that, especially a man making movie about a, about a yeah. girl. Um, it's, it's very rare. And, uh, this was quite a feat that he pulled off. Absolutely. All right. So my second favorite movie of 2018, oh boy, <laughs> calm down. Well, we're getting there. It's all happening. I I don't like this guy. Um, (laughs) Is uh, Paul Schrader's First Reformed, um, which is... Uh, I'm, I'm actually surprised it's not higher on your list. Why well, do you, you know first why? First Reformed so much. Why? Because it's a 2017 movie. Oh, that's right. I forgot. I'm I crazy. Forgot. That's why. Um, I'm a lunatic. And uh, yeah. And also there are 2018 movies that I've seen that you will consider 2019 movies. Sure. And yet I won't put on either list. Yeah. Because I just it's like. I'm confusing. Just, I'm just crazy. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I've. I've been a fan of Paul Schrader for a very long time um, as a writer and then especially as a director. Um, it just, I don't know what it is, but like the stuff that he explores, it's usually about 
men uh, trying to figure out what it means to be a man and what it doesn't mean, uh, which happened, which is some something of a pet theme of mine, and um, and just the idea of like men in pain and a good number of that, uh, like a lot of that pain is self inflicted, either because of something that actually did happen, um, but the idea that the person just keeps reminding themselves of that over and over again. Um, it seems inevitable that Paul Schrader would eventually direct a movie called affliction. Uh, mm-hmm. it just feels right. But, uh, I do think that, and I do love affliction. I love Adam resurrected and light sleeper. And I like, I even like autofocus. Um, but just <clears throat> these guys that are driven by something that, that they may or may not totally understand. They often misinterpret it. Um, and I think that's a big part of first reformed is you have this character who is, he's a, a pastor and he, he does believe these things, but you know, by way of, uh, you know, personal examples, um, my faith is usually is more intellectual than emotional, which is something that has bothered me in the past because there are days when I wonder, do I actually believe this? Cause it doesn't feel like I believe this. Uh, cause I'm, a, I'm an emotional person with almost everything else. Mm. Um, and you know, when I hear my friends talk about like that, they, that they feel the presence of God is like, I have not felt that I believe this but I don't feel that. And that can be very, very frustrating. And I feel like this character hasn't felt much of anything for a while. And so that I think causes him to feel tremendous doubt and feel like he's just drifting, um, and doesn't really know where he's going. And then he's presented with something else that could give his life purpose. And he seems Mm. to be committing to that while never leaving anything behind either. Like he's kind of bringing everything that he's experienced, everything he's believed to where he is right now. But eventually I think he feels so directionless, um, that he winds up going down a path that you wouldn't have expected at the beginning of the film, but you also can kind of see why he would make these decisions. And so, but that's just talking about the story and, and the themes and that sort of thing. I, I also feel like it's a wonderfully shot film. It was in the, you know, Academy, Academy seven. what are we going to say? Yeah. Um, that's something I was actually going to bring up because we, we know Paul Schrader as the screenwriter first, you yeah. know, taxi driver, last Temptation, stuff like that. Um, I think sometimes his skill as a visual storyteller uh, gets overlooked. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he, this is the guy who made Mishima, which is a, a beautifully colorful movie. Um, but also, yeah, here you've got the, the sort of uh, juxtaposition between the frame being tight because it's in the academy, yeah. but he's often so alone in the church or in the rectory or whatever. Yeah. Is it called the rectory or is that just a Catholic thing? Uh, I don't actually know. Uh, wherever the priest, the priest house or yeah. whatever, you know, <laughs> he's alone in these sparsely furnished rooms. You know, he's, uh, he's both hemmed in and at sea at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that comes across visually. Yeah. And it's interesting. The film's not actually in black and white, but I keep remembering <laughs> it as black and white. Um, because it is it is so sparse in general um i i love but then you wouldn't get the beauty of the pepto-bismol poured into the whiskey which that's is right. one of my favorite shots of, that's right. of the year yeah or of 2017 whatever you want to say if you're crazy like of that. a year yeah um <laughs> 
like cumulatively, like you just take these bits and pieces from various years. Um, (laughs) and so, uh, yeah, I, I love the whole cast. Everybody just seems to understand the tone that he is going for. And what's interesting is that yes, the end gets rather extreme, but, um, but it's such a, it's such a quiet contemplative film without anybody feeling overly that you know there is no like character staring off in the distance and then like making these not to disparage this but like this these terence malachian Mm -hmm. uh proclamations what is faith yeah that sort of thing it's not that um and uh it's it feels very it's conversational to a point but then it you know, you have characters discussing philosophies and beliefs and all that. It's just a, it's just a wonderful, fully realized uh, depiction of, again, a very common uh, Paul Schrader trope, which is uh, just the man. You use the word adrift. I think that's perfect. Mm-hmm. Like the man adrift. I think I said at sea. At sea. I think I said adrift. Which so yeah. I think I said you it said right. it right. Yeah. No, at sea. I think works as well. It just because that's that concept is so lonely and like mm-hmm. and it makes the the character feel so small and i think he feels very small and often yeah. looks small uh in yeah. in the frame and so it's uh yeah i i adore the film i'm uh, not that oscars matter that much but i'm happy it was nominated for screenplay would have liked it to be nominated for actor um but that that whole cast yeah. is great as well so yeah cedric kyles cedric kyles philip edinger i think does a marvelous yeah. job i just think it's funny that because then i saw it, i didn't know cedric the entertainment was in it so oh, i saw okay, like yeah. oh, who's this cedric kyles third bill <laughs> <laughs> Who's this guy? And yeah. then I was like, that's Cedric the Entertainer from St. Louis. Oh, all right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, that's my number two. What's your number one? That's my question. My number one movie of the year, uh, even though it is kind of arranged as two movies, it's one movie. It's Patrick Wayne's, sorry, Patrick Wang's A Bread Factory. Okay. And uh, this is uh, a movie similar to other I keep coming back to Happy as Lazaro and maybe that's a movie that what I put it at what number nine yeah, uh, I think so. no number eight uh, and I wonder if in a couple of years I'll look at it and be like oh that should be even higher because uh, I'm already realizing how much I'm thinking about it yeah. but uh, it's another movie that goes from somewhat realist but not fully realist to full on magical realism uh, but it doesn't make that transition gradually at all it's uh, the, the first the part one which is called, is it called the, it's the price of gold or something. Mm. Uh, they have named second one. The part two is called walk with me a while. The first one I think is called, it's the something of gold. Um, and, um, it is about a small Southern town that, uh, has a community theater slash film school slash essentially, a uh, not for profit art center that also teaches, uh, art classes <laughs> to kids and therefore is somewhat dependent on the town, on the city's, uh, uh, school board budget and a new, uh, m- more well-funded corporatized version of this coming from a popular, um, uh, within the world realm of the world, a popular uh, experimental theater duo uh, decides they're going to set up their office in, in this small town. And suddenly, the bread factory is at, at risk of losing uh, its main source of, of funding. And so, most of the first the first half, the first two hours, 
is us getting to know what the bread factory does, getting to know who may Ray, the, these, these outsiders mm-hmm. are, uh, and culminating in, uh, a very long final scene of the actual school board hearing where the mm-hmm. vote, uh, is, is going to happen. And then I won't tell you how that vote goes, yeah. but the difference between the first and second part is like flipping a switch mm-hmm. because suddenly once this decision has been made, the, the, the art, I guess that we see as being confined to an art center or to someone who gets up on stage and wears funny costumes and does quote unquote art, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, like interpretive, whatever, yeah. uh, experimental theater, whatever that sort of thing is. Um, has spilled out has suddenly it's lost its 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 rules its codifications and now everyone in the town is suddenly capable at any point of breaking into song or dance hmm. or, exp- or 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 expressing themselves uh in in any in any of these uh, artistic artistic ways um and i think What's so fascinating about the movie, and a number of things are fascinating about the movie. First off, the idea that it decides to set up its little guys versus big guys thing within the world of like experimental theater. Fringe theater, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, like like in most other stories, May Ray would be the ones we're rooting for because they're the the weirdos. Um, uh, But uh, so first off, that's fascinating. And second off, the idea that that, that Patrick Wayne doesn't, is not content with just platitudes about art about saying, Oh, it'd be great if we could all express ourselves all the time. Right. Um, and is actually sort of bringing up a conversation about like, maybe there's some reason and some use to the idea that we have codified certain types of expression Mm. that, that maybe they have more power if they're within certain forms. And if everyone is being outwardly, uh, expression, uh, outwardly expressing themselves all the time, if things turn into a a cacophonous mess, um, you know, if you've got one person singing an aria and the other person tap dancing to something else, which is something that actually happens in the Mm. diner, uh, it doesn't, look beautiful it looks messy and a little bit scary Um, there's obviously a lot more going on than what I just described it's four hours long over four hours I think four hours and two minutes is the full runtime. Uh, there's other things about like the, the responsibility of, of journalism, especially arts journalism. Um, the idea of to what extent are you, you know, and this applies to us as, as film critics, um, to what extent are we there to be advocates for what's good to the public? Mm -hmm. Like that's important, but then also to what extent are we actually journalists and should we be challenging the things that we're, that we're writing about? Um, and, and where does, where does that line between critic and journalist, uh, exist? It's, that's a very interesting uh, conversation that goes on. Um, something that I, remember Gene Siskel saying that I've actually uh, quoted to all of my classes at this point because I have them write a weekly reaction to the film that we watched um, is that when he's writing a review he is treating it as though he is a journalist and he's just telling a story and trying to get all the facts but the story is his reaction to the film so the idea is Mm -hmm. I want to try and be he wants to try and be objective and probing about an opinion or more specifically, I guess a reaction. And so, yeah, I do think that if you're, I think if you're as a 
as a critic or as, you know, anybody who writes about the arts, I feel like if you're being true to yourself and trying to really explore that, I think both things will probably happen. Um, but I can't guarantee that. Um, oh, there's something else I was going to say. Oh, but the, the cast, um, is mostly, um, people, mostly unknown, uh, the, the main, so the, the two, the, the, the couple who run the, um, uh, the bread factory, uh, one of them is Tyne Daly, mm-hmm. who's also in Battle of Buster Scruggs, yeah. uh, having a good year, uh, Tyne Daly. The other one is a woman named, uh, I was just looking it up, Elizabeth Henry McCary. She's, uh, amazing. But the only other kind of names in the movie, and I talked about the movie journal, uh, Janine Garofalo plays a visiting filmmaker who's teaching classes at the bread factory. She's only in the first, um, she probably was, uh, eligible for the Bruce McGill. <laughs> Maybe it's on the, on the cusp, but she's, um, uh, very funny and very caustic, very caustically Janine Graffalo. That sounds about right. And you've also got James Marsters from Buffy the Vampire Slayer who plays okay. Spike, and he plays the um, he plays a school teacher who was elected by the other school teachers to represent the teachers to the school board. Mm. Uh, and he's obviously very passionate about um, what he's standing up for, but he's also kind of enjoying the spotlight and enjoying mm. that he's an English teacher and is good with words and is kind of sticking it to the more intransigent, uh, less art, uh, yeah. art, uh, focused or art leaning, um, members of the board. So even he's not like he's, he's at first he's like, he's look at this heroic guy standing up to the board, but then you see that he's, uh, also kind of full of himself. Um, and is maybe not the best dad or husband either. Uh, it's, it's a really great, uh, performance really great character. And it's sort of indicative of, uh, or representative of, of everyone in the movie who every character in the movie is something good and something bad. You know, mm-hmm. time daily is, uh, an advocate for the arts, but she also has almost no patience for anyone. <laughs> uh, you know, she's in some ways, she's the most closed off person in, in, yeah. in the movie, uh, and the most quick to anger, uh, great, great movie. And also just to make a four hour movie that I couldn't stop watching, you know, I, I was, uh, sad when the first part, cause I watched it two nights, just scheduling wise, watched it two mm-hmm. nights apart, um, which is the first part is called for the sake of gold. I looked it up just now. Um, not the price of gold. So for the sake of gold, when the first part in there was like, fuck, I can't believe it's one o'clock in the morning. I have to go to bed because <laughs> right, I have to yeah. get up tomorrow. I wish I could stay up till three and just watch the second part. That's how good this is. Yeah. To hear you and Scott talk about it, it sounds really marvelous. And, really invigorating um a conversation we had (laughs) recently that people aren't going to get to hear for weeks uh uh, was the idea of this is on the patreon uh, patreon yeah um you know what movies like give you a lust for life and just the way i remember the way scott was describing a a bread factory it sounded like as someone who appreciates the arts as i do someone who's done theater as i have but also just in what i enjoy watching people create um and then within that the academic side of me is i enjoy watching people talk about creation yeah. and in some, maybe even debate about creation. Well, I talked about, I'm going to repeat myself from the movie journal, but just as a refresher, I talked about my favorite scene in the movie, maybe my favorite single scene of the year in which a non-actor, the local waitress mm-hmm. uh, who's been recruited to fill in for an actress who, who left her first rehearsal and the way she goes from being kind of what you'd expect a pretty like, reticent wooden actor yeah. and then through the strength of Tyne Daly's direction and Elizabeth Henry McCary's scene partnerism you see uh, a great performance come out over the course yeah. of this one rehearsal scene uh, is an absolutely beautiful testament to uh, how art 
exists in all of us. All right. I also suddenly want to watch Topsy Turvy, but anyway. Oh yeah, it's been um, a while. Okay. So my number one, I don't know why I'm looking at my phone. I know what it is. Okay. Um, I'm very excited because you told me off mic that I'd seen this one. I'm pretty sure you have. Okay. Yeah, I think so. It is Alex Garland's Annihilation. Oh, great. Which I saw almost exactly a year ago. I saw it on my birthday. Um, okay. Can you, I want, I'm going to show you my list, not the whole list. But my first honorable mention was Private Life. Okay. Do you see where Annihilation is? Oh. It is literally number 16 on my list. All right. Well, that's good. It's good to know you don't despise this film as other people do. That's not... I'm not referencing anybody <laughs> at that point. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, I'll say this. Uh, first Reformed was my number one until I did a More Than One Lesson episode about Annihilation. And then in talking with uh, my co-host, Reed... Um, it was a very invigorating conversation because like we just kept saying something and then building on each other until we got to this point where, uh, the film certainly from a thematic standpoint, I I love, which I'll talk about in a minute, but I just think it's, it's the kind of science fiction that we don't see very often. Uh, these days science fiction usually just means like it's an action movie, but like, you know, in space or something, (laughs) Yeah, you know, lasers uh, instead of bullets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so this is the kind of science fiction. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy, I mean, alien is my, is one of my favorite movies of all time. And that's a horror movie that is also science fiction, you know, and it's very straightforward. I think it's wonderfully done. It is possible to make wonderful films that are the type of science fiction I'm talking sure. about, but you know, the history of, of, of sci-fi is, an intellectual one dealing with some pretty deep concepts and often some metaphysical concepts. That's what I like is that even though it's called science fiction, uh, the supernatural or the spiritual often play a, a huge role. And I like that certain things are never explained in annihilation, even though people are really trying to, they're really trying to figure Mm -hmm. it out. And this, this thing that comes to earth doesn't seem to have a consciousness. It just is. And the way that it is, is to just change and affect. And I don't know. And just, yeah, to just change the stuff around it, not necessarily make it worse, not necessarily make it better, not make it uglier, not make it more beautiful. It just changes it. Um, and with no real purpose in mind, like, and, and I find that to be such a fascinating idea and a frustrating one because, Mm -hmm. you know, when, when things in our lives change, sometimes often outside of our own control, we get so frustrated partially because, well, now we have to learn something new. (laughs) We have to figure out the new rules, you know? Um, and over the course, and so you watch this film and you have these various characters, all of whom have had pretty painful lives. Uh, some of them are in the midst of it. Uh, and you see these various reactions to this force that is changing the world and could change them. And you have people that are completely resistant to it. People that are driven insane by it. People give themselves over to it and others simply just want to befriend it and are just continuing to dig into it and figure out what it means. And 
<coughs> so I just, I love that idea, the, the larger metaphor for change and the fact, I mean, and then the, the title annihilation, it's a, it's a, it's a negative word. We view annihilation as a negative word, but at the same time, if you're going to change, uh, you will be leaving your old self behind. And, you know, it's a, a common, I feel like I've been talking about my faith a lot in this episode. Sorry, everybody. Oh, um, it's not like it's not something that's important to you. <laughs> well, I don't feel it very often, as I've said before. Um, but the idea in, in Christian terms, there's the idea of dying to yourself, um, which is, you know, acknowledging your own selfishness and self-centeredness and the capacity you have for manipulation of others to get what you want. And that, if you if you're going to be a new creation if you're going to be one could say born again then you have to die to yourself that means like putting on and then another biblical term is like you know taking off the old flesh and putting on the new and so you know those are because there's a sense of renewal in those in the those concepts uh it's not quite so scary but in order for something new to come there needs to be a, a type of annihilation. Yeah. You know, and, and the film was called renewal, then it would completely restructure the way we see the film. Oh yeah. You yeah. Know, um, or rebirth or something like that. But that gets into what, uh, how I felt. One of the things I felt about the movie is that, yes, it is a science fiction movie, but it also is a kind of horror movie. Oh yeah. Because, uh, I mean, you talked about the idea of, um, something new happens and, Oh, we have to learn new rules, but, what if we can't? What if right. the new thing that's come is actually bigger than that? And bigger be, than beyond us. us. Yes. Um, and, uh, and there's, yeah, I remember, I mean, I saw my wife asked me, because she was going to go see it uh, with her movie pass. That was, that was 2018. You can remember. <laughs> Seems so long ago that movie yeah. pass worked. But um, <laughs> does it, it still exists, I guess. It still exists. Yeah, uh, yeah. I saw somebody on Facebook said like, hey, I wanted to go and see this movie and Movie Pass showed me the only available showtime that they would cover. And it was like 1 p.m. <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, but yeah, so my wife was like because uh, she my, my wife doesn't really like scary movies, but like, likes to at least know beforehand what she's getting into. So she was mm-hmm. like, is it scary? And I was like, it's not scary, scary. It's more existentially scary yeah. now my wife actually found the the bear monster thing to be actually <laughs> like, scary yeah, yeah. just regular old scary scary and yeah. i kind of i guess i kind of forgot to warn her about that yeah. um but uh yeah I, I i certainly in science fiction but i do think it's also one of yeah. the best horror movies of the year. yeah and and admittedly i feel the same way you did when i think of the film i think of the larger things that are going on and without realizing that for a without remembering that for a good long while in the film, the characters are terrorized by an actual monster. Yeah. Um, you know, and of course, because of the rest of the film, I'm reluctant to even call it a monster in that moment. It's just this different thing, but, uh, you know, it's understandable to call it a monster because it is terrorizing them. Yeah. Um, I like to think, I don't know if this is true. I like to think if I were in the situation, I would be more, of a Tessa Thompson than a Gina Rodriguez mm-hmm. that I would be able to be at some sort of peace. Yeah. Um, but that was something my wife found particularly terrifying. Tessa Thompson's reaction to what's going on. Yeah. Got under my wife's skin. Whereas I found it to be one of the more beautiful parts of the right. movie. And that's, and that speaks, I think to what we're to, to the themes of the film that the idea of somebody just giving them, giving into mm-hmm. what's going on and actually feeling liberated by it is something that for for some 
is a, is a horrifying prospect. Like, why would I want to, like, why would I want to change, you know? But of course we've only experienced this, what, you know, our lives now, and we haven't experienced whatever this new thing is. And some people just give right into it and we're like, no, they're different and different is, is bad, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And I just, I, I just, and, and the film I think has an ambiguous ending, one that some people could see as vaguely sinister. Um, I don't necessarily. I don't see it, it that, that way. way. But yeah, I but I think some people could. Yeah, and so it's just a, it's just such a fascinating. I think inv- it was an invigorating movie for yeah. me, and I, I really, really loved it. All right. Well, this has been fun. We're not even at the three hour mark. So I know. We, yeah, we we did this uh, real economically. <laughs> I'm sure that's how the listeners feel yeah. too. Uh, you can find us uh, and reviews of many of these movies at battleshipretention.com. You can also this week on the website, you've got uh, reviews of the movies that just came out: Birds of Passage, Hotel by the River, and Isn't It Romantic. Uh, the Criterion predict- Prediction column Alex wrote about uh, the 1992's Gwelwar. Um, what else? Uh, also, Alex, with the trailer project, looked at uh, 1988's The Big Heat. Um, we've got ongoing... I guess we're at the end of our top tens. Yeah. Uh, Craig and Sarah closed things out this week, and then yeah. you've just heard ours. So mm-hmm. um, the BP top ten is upcoming. Yeah. Um, so that's all at the website. You can email me at David at battleship com or email Tyler at Tyler at battleship com. I'm on, t- I'm on Twitter at Davey pretension. Tyler's at Tyler pretension. Tyler, isn't there anything going on and more than one lesson this week? Uh, yes, there, there is. Um, uh, the fear of God is, is continuing. Um, and then that's just true. Well, in, in your life. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's true. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, there is a, a podcast that, uh, the, the host Jacob Kinberg, he took a break for a while, but it's called salty cinema and that is back and he's doing some good stuff there. And then one of my writers, while we were recording, he, he, uh, sent me a message, uh, that I thought I would relate relate to you and the listener he says hi tyler i've written almost two thousand words about gremlins too because i'm a crazy person so <laughs> i can't wait you, to see that so you can look for an article a rather in-depth article it sounds like about gremlins too fantastic so that's there um is there anything else no we're done um oh yeah this week on the patreon yes. is the bp ceremony that's right um so yeah f- go to patreon.com slash battleship retention to be in on the to be one of the cool kids uh, you can uh, that's it thank you for listening we'll get you next time bye bye This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 